When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. It's also an auspicious date in American history. I think President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said it best when he talked about how this day would be remembered. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Now, um, this is December 7th. As Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, it is a day that has lived on in infamy. And I'm curious, I think there's obviously there's a lot going on in the news and in life, and we'll talk about a wide variety of things. But that really was a game changer in terms of American history. And one of the things that we saw occur in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor and the Pearl Harbor attack was not only a tremendous uh, surge of patriotism, a change in the attitude of Americans about participating in World War II, because prior to that attack, And we're going to get into what exactly was happening with respect to history in our third hour when historian David Pietruzza joins us. Prior to that attack, many Americans felt like World War II was not their war. They felt that uh, this was going to be something, let the Nazis and the Reds fight it out. And that all changed with Pearl Harbor. Not only did the surge of um, of patriotism and of a desire to get involved in World War II occur. But you also saw a tremendous uptick in military enlistment. I'm going to tell you exactly what happened in terms of military enlistment uh, back in 1941. But 81 years later, there's fewer and fewer people alive that remember what occurred at Pearl Harbor in terms of not being a historical fact, but something that uh, they experienced in real time, the way the people of our generation experienced September 11th. And my question is this, at 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, there were a lot of lives lost at Pearl Harbor. 
But there was also a surge in military enlistment. And I am curious if you think that if something like that were to happen today, would we see the same surge in military enlistment that we did back then, back in 1941? Because the only parallel in my lifetime is September 11th. And we actually did see a uh, an uptick in military enlistment in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. Here was uh, Technical Sergeant Evan Chinoweth on KTHV in Little Rock talking about his decision to join the military after the September 11th attacks. I couldn't take my eyes off the screen at the time. My daughter was sitting in a high chair behind me. I was uh, watching her while my wife was at work. And, and uh, yeah, I, I can remember pretty much everything about that day. My dad approached me about joining the military when I was quite young. I said if my country needed me, I would, I would enlist, but I wasn't really interested in the career in the military. After 9-11 and in the weeks that followed, uh, I thought, wow, you know, I, I told my dad that when I was young. Did I really mean that? And uh, we did see a big uptick in enlistment in all the branches after September 11th. The thing that we saw in the aftermath of both September 11th and Pearl Harbor, though, was a sense of unity. And it lasted about two weeks in the aftermath of September 11th. I get the sense, and again, I didn't live through it. I know this only as a student of history, that it lasted a lot longer after Pearl Harbor. I get the sense that after the Pearl Harbor attack, there was a sense that we were all in this together, whether or not we were Democrats, whether or not we were Republicans, uh, Jewish, Catholic, Italian-American, German-American, even Japanese-American, even though uh, they would... uh, some of them, at least, would find themselves placed in internment camps. You you ask someone how much a 1942 Model T Ford cost. It's a trick question because there was no 1942 Model T Ford because all of industry in America was mobilized to assist with the American war effort. Everything stopped. Baseball players, politicians, all enlisted voluntarily in the military. And you saw... Essentially, America put it, the Americans put their own interests aside for what they felt was the good of the country. So my question for you is, if this were to happen today, would you see the same thing occur? Why or why not? Does it happen that whenever we're attacked, we unify and there's a temporary surge not only in patriotism but putting aside all of the petty nonsense that seems to divide people? on a daily basis, and there's a surge in military enlistment, and then eventually it all goes back to sort of status quo, people fighting over partisanship and everything else, and uh, we go back to the uh, monotony of fighting about silly things. Or would it not be the case today? If there was a similar attack along the magnitude of Pearl Harbor, would it be different? Why or why not? That is the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. If there was a Pearl Harbor-style attack today, would the reaction in the country 
in terms of unity, in terms of putting aside partisanship and petty squabbles, be the same as it was back in 1941? Would we see the same surge in military enlistment? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. It is interesting because the there was such a surge in enlistment that the U.S. Army was largely reorganized because of all the increased manpower that they were going to have. You saw, and again, we're going to get into this with historian David Priatruza in the third hour of the program, but the Army reorganized, placing the National Guard, the regular Army, and the enlisted reserve under their control, and it mandated recruits to sign up for as long as the war continued. So you couldn't just join and sign up for two years or three years. You had to sign up for as long as World War II continued. Now, on September 11th, in response to those attacks, you saw 181,510 Americans enlist in the active duty service, and 72,908 Americans joined the enlisted reserves in the year following September 11th. Now, ultimately, uh, in 1940, prior to U.S. entry into World War II, you had the first peacetime draft in our nation's history that was enacted in response to the increase in tension. So there was already the beginning of a conscription in place prior to the Pearl Harbor attack, but there was still a surge of people volunteering to enlist. So whether it's enlistment or just the general sense of unity that seemed to have gripped the country in 1941, do you think we'd see the same thing today? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what else is coming up. Very excited uh, next hour to talk with TZ Borden. He's been a guest on the show before. And uh, he's got this terrific true crime podcast called Tapes from the Dark Side, in which um, he each season delves into a different criminal case. Sometimes there's an sometimes the uh, proponent or the criminal in these criminal cases is a little mysterious. Sometimes there's things that need to be further explored, and he has is going to break up down this latest case. I didn't know anything about the case that he's covering now prior to him doing it, but it's a fascinating case. That's coming up next hour. 800-848-9222. Trevor in New Jersey, 81 years ago, it was the day that would live in infamy. How do you think America would react if something like that happened today? I feel basically ever since, like, the Gulf War that we've had sort of a laziness to any sort of any sort of conjuring of a war effort. I mean, people don't have the same sort of drive to want to maintain a readiness. And it's a sad state of affairs, but, you know, it's ineffectual, and there should be a change towards that. Everybody should maintain, you know, just some sort of vigilance and readiness to want to protect their country in the best way possible. I, I myself never really did any serving, but I have family members of mine that have served in the Marines and then the Navy and, and I have the utmost respect for them, but it's it's just we. My cousin came back from the Marines about six months ago, and he said himself that there wasn't really uh, the same morality that he knew about from Gulf War, or from World War II, or right, even but, but from Trevor, the don't, Vietnam don't, War. Don't you think it's only natural that? 
these issues come more to the forefront when we see something like a a Pearl Harbor attack or September 11th. At Pearl Harbor, there were uh, 2,335 military personnel killed. On September 11th, you had over 3,000 Americans that were killed. Those events sort of... Uh, shake us up and shake people to their core and make the, it's sort of a wake up call, especially for a lot of young people who realize that so. it's that it's now kind of a new era. So maybe it's it's unfair to compare, um, you know, the attitude uh, and the mindset of Americans following one of these attacks compared to what happens on a regular basis. But your view is that um, even if we saw something like a Pearl Harbor attack today, we wouldn't see the same degree of unity, the same degree of military enlistment. There's a patriotism that, you know, my my personal family has always upheld. But as far as like a like in the grand scale and the grand scope of things with Biden and how he's kind of had everything all over the place, personally, in my opinion, it's it's not it's it's not going to be the same as as what it was with 9-11 or anything like that or Pearl Harbor. No. Very interesting, Trevor. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Tony is in Florida. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. It's nice talking to you. Likewise. Thank you. Well, I have an idea that the Generation Z and Millennial Generation are too selfish to join the military. They think everything should be done for them, and that means other people. And on top of that, since, in my opinion, the Democratic Party is trying to destroy this nation so we'd become fascists, I don't think they'd be any help either. So I don't see what happened in 41, which I heard a lot about from my grandparents and my parents, because my dad uh, fought in World War II. He um, was part of releasing the um, concentration camps. In fact, well, that's he great. was one of the men that shot down all the guards, they executed wow. them. Yeah, and yeah. Tony, uh, thank you, and I appreciate your family's service as well. I um, I don't really want to make this a political issue, meaning Democrats have ruined the country or Republicans have ruined the country because, one, it's, it's tiresome. Two, I actually think, I, I came across some quotes recently, and I wish I had them in front of me, but I came across some quotes recently of uh, adults who had uh, who were in their 50s around the time of the Pearl Harbor attack who had served in World War 1 and essentially what those people were saying is that their children were selfish and lazy and that their kids would become the greatest generation the people that fought and won World War 2 so part of me thinks that every adult generation says of the current generation of young people, ah, these kids today, they're so selfish, and they can't do anything, they're not into... So I think I'm trying to parse what I think is just a, a, a universal generational bias from adults towards young people. When I say adults, I mean older adults, say 50-plus, towards 18- to 30-year-olds. And determine um, – and the other thing that you, that, that you said, which was, I found very interesting, was you brought up Democrats. And I didn't mention Democrats. But FDR, obviously, who was the president at the time, was a Democrat. My, and uh, my 
great-grandfather, who I never met, my great-grandfather on my father's side, not the, uh, not, uh, his name was not uh, Morano, this was my my paternal grandmother's father. His name was Frank, actually. Uh, so his name was uh, Frank Benigno, actually. So he was a Democrat, loyal, very loyal Democratic uh, partisan, but he did not like FDR. He was loyal to Al Smith and the Al Smith Democrats. And Al Smith had a falling out with FDR for reasons we'll save for another show. But uh, because my great-grandfather was an old-school Tammany Hall Democrat, they did not like FDR. And then World War II broke out, and um, my grandmother told me, or actually, no, it was my Uncle Caesar, her, her brother, my Uncle Caesar, told me that he put up a photo of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a picture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in their house. And... My Uncle Caesar says, why do you have that picture of FDR up? You don't even like him. And so my great-grandfather apparently smacked my Uncle Caesar in the face. And my Uncle Caesar then subsequently not only served in World War II, but in the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And he was incredulous, my great-grandfather, that he would, my uncle, would bring up a petty political squabble at a time of national unity. So I wonder, would an attack um, along the magnitude of a September 11th be enough to get people to stop villainizing Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whomever your least favorite politician is on the other side? Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Ilhan Omar or Matt Gates, whoever your least favorite politician is, wh- whoever you view as the personification of political evil, would you take a breath? If we were attacked and say, all right, for, for today, let's pretend the enemy is the people that attack us, not each other. What would it take? Because the bottom line is there are a number of very serious crises in this country that we're facing and in this world. And uh, wouldn't it be something if we could take that Pearl Harbor mentality or that September 11th mentality and come together now? Just like people did in the aftermath of the Pearl Harbor attacks. 800-848-9222. What do you think? 1-800-848-9222. Loretta is in New Rochelle. Hello, Loretta. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm going to say that there would be, I think there'd be like a small surge in enlistment, but nothing like it was during World War II. My dad was one of those that couldn't wait to sign up Mm. at age 17. He joined the Marines. He um, lied about his age. And all of his friends and cousins and everybody in that age group, they all signed up. They couldn't wait to go. Um, So I I don't think it would ever be like that again for a couple of reasons. One is that I I just can't imagine most 17-year-olds today doing that because they're – they're, they're soft compared to the 17-year-olds um, of that era. And it's not, I'm not gonna, it's not their fault. It's just that life got easier. Parents do a lot more for their kids. They have, you know, all, all the modern conveniences. Um, they're not tough like my dad's generation. They were tough anyway. Most of them grew up poor. They didn't have much. So, like, um, joining the military was 
just I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm expressing no, no. It right I, I think they, you're. I think you're expre- already tough. You know, and they they knew what hard times were. Um, where I think most kids today, like at 17, they have no idea. And then the other thing I always think about is that when all my dad, that my dad's generation joined at 17, they really didn't know what they were getting into because now we see, we know what war is. Mm-hmm. We see it on TV every day in movies. We see live footage. We see photographs. Back then, I don't think, I mean, yes, they did see some things about World War One, but nothing like we see today. So I don't think they knew the horrors of war um, mm. so much as like um, uh, like we do today. We know it's horrific, but um, I don't think back then they knew as much as we did as far as how horrific it could be. Interesting, uh, Loretta. Uh, Loretta, thank you very much. It is interesting because as I uh, look, I don't pretend to be an expert in American history. We are going to talk with an expert in American history in our third hours. In our third hour, uh, not an expert by any means. I want to make that very clear. I am a great student of American history, and I try to learn as much as I can about different eras of American history. And as I could tell, really throughout the entirety of the last 150 years, there's really only been two times that we were ever really united as a country. One was a brief moment after September 11th. And the other was, and this was a lot more than a brief moment, was after the Pearl Harbor attack. And I think that, to me, is the most amazing thing about Pearl Harbor. There was no more politics. There were no more political, I mean, there were were political parties, but there was no partisanship. People who, two days before the attack, were champions of isolationism and critics of FDR were now in full support of the war. You know who one of... FDR's biggest uh, cheerleaders was in terms of rallying support for for World War II was Wendell Wilkie, who ran against him the year before. Imagine that. Imagine if there were an attack like this now, God forbid, and the biggest cheerleader rallying support for Biden was Donald Trump. That's exactly what what occurred with Wendell Wilkie and FDR. Wilkie said at the time, there is no politics here. There's only one party when it comes to the integrity and honor of this country. Um, Actually, that was not a quote from Wendell Wilkie. That was a quote from the House Republican minority leader, Joseph Martin. Wendell Wilkie said, I have not the slightest doubt as to what a united America should and will do. Less than an hour after the president gave his famous day that would live in infamy speech that I just played for you. Congress voted nearly unanimously for war with Japan. In the Senate, the vote was 82 to nothing. In the House, the vote was 388 to 1. And um, you saw food rationing, gas rationing, civil defense volunteers, scrap metal drives, rubber drives, paper drives, victory gardens. All these stood as very tangible evidence of the unity of Americans in the days after Pearl Harbor. Revenue from war bonds bought from every walk of life were flowing in. Donations for the war effort were stacking up. Bonds were a very popular Christmas gift. They'd sell for $25 all the way up to $1,000. One man who was too old to fight donated $25 for the effort. Another woman sent simply $5 in. A senior class at a high school in Texas used $37.50 that they had planned for their class picnic 
to buy bonds instead. Babe Ruth wanted to buy a $100,000 worth of war bonds. He was told that the maximum was $50,000, so he bought half in December of 1941 and the other half in January of 1942. Um, Later, in December of 1941, just four days before Christmas, Roosevelt declared that the New Year's Day should be considered a universal day of prayer. So um, I just, I wonder about what would happen to the country today. I try to be optimistic in the long run, but I really do get dejected and disappointed seeing how polarized the country becomes over such petty nonsense. And maybe that's the sign of a thriving society, right? Maybe a thriving society that's not um, living under the constant thumb of having their lives or their freedom snapped away, they can argue for uh, days on end about uh, about Herschel Walker or something. Maybe that is the sign of a thriving environment. I just, um, I, look, I, I don't know. I don't know. I am curious what you think. 800-848-9222. David is in the Hudson Valley. Hello, David. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Mm-hmm. I was a police officer during September 11th. I was in, I was in the Marine Corps for six years, the Marine Corps Reserve for six years as well. I do remember during September 11th how unified the country was. It was it was actually a really beautiful thing to to mm-hmm. feel and see uh, when I was working down there. Um, but you know, unfortunately, I think today, if we're talking about the youth, you know, when you, I, I just see the youth a little bit differently now. I think the same grit or the same – I would hope I'm wrong, though. But I, and if, it's, if something bad – I don't want to see something bad happen, but something bad did happen if we did get unified again. Um, all the petty things that you're saying that, uh, that people are going through or people, what's going on politically, we could put it all aside and be unified. I would hope that would happen. But this, the, the way that you thought today, in my opinion – they don't have the same love of country. I just, I, I just feel that, and I would hope I'm wrong. Well, That's so uh, David, a lot of people seem to be saying what you're saying, right? I have a full yeah. call board, and I think just about everybody agrees with you. Tell me why. Tell me why you think a 17 year old or an 18 year old in 2022 is mm-hmm. less inclined, is less patriotic, I'll say, than an 18 year old in 2001. <laughs> I, I just. I just, it's what I see, what I see with the young people today. Even when I was a police officer still, um, uh, just recently when I had retired, just the youth, it just seems like a video game. They seem like video game generation now to me. Uh, Everything, everybody's fighting with each other and they're more concerned about themselves. I I just see, I just, it's hard to put it into words. I'm having a hard time doing that. No, no, no. David, congratulations on your retirement. I appreciate the call and I appreciate you listening. My friend, Obi Murray, who uh, also is a veteran of the uh, American military calling in. Hello, Obi. How are you, Frank? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's been good news, by the way. I found my t-shirt. Oh, great. uh, Terrific. Well, you're a winner. You're you're a winner already. You're a winner already. There you go. There you go. Hey, um, I, I disagree. I think the youth today is terrific. I think it's just it's a generational thing. The, the generation that was there and moves up always looks at the other generation as saying we had it tougher. I think uh, I do for too. a lot of different reasons. Yeah. I've, I've got my friend's kid. 
he didn't go to college. He wanted to go into the Air Force. He chose his father was a you know, Apache pilot over in Iraq, so he knew what was he was in for. He raised his hand and went and he enlisted. Another family's got one kid that enlisted and two went to West Point. So I, I disagree. I think the kids today would do it. I think your challenge is going to be, God forbid, it happened on our our uh, in our country opposed to somewhere else like the Beirut Embassy or something, but. Uh, it unifies. There's no question about it. Some people be outspoken against it, but they, they could have been outspoken, too, in, in World War II. There was no megaphone then. There was no social media. There was no outlet. How dare you speak out like that? So they have, That's they have true. That's true. So I think there was no a, opportunity for a couple of random Twitter people to call for canceling FDR or something. Yeah, or organizing. Right. That's fair. That's they, fair. They uh, couldn't organize, but I, th- I, think it's a, I think it's too easy to say that the youth of today isn't as strong as the youth of yesterday. Y- you know, and, and again, I'm going to try to find this quote, and I think I might have come across it in Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation. The, yeah. the World War I doughboys, they basically said the same thing about the people that won World War II that a lot of these folks that are calling in now are saying about today's youth. So a part of me does think that every adult generation uh, criticizes whoever's young at the moment. But I also just wonder about the overall sense of unity that we saw in the country in 1941 and to some extent in 2001. They're also blaming themselves as parents. Then what did they do for their kids? Right. What did they do to not raise them that way? That's fair. That's fair. Obi, go ahead. You had another comment? No, I I was going to say, I think I I enlisted after working for Bush in uh, 88. But when I did it, it, it was all patriotic. I would, when I went into the Army, I then went to be an independent. I was not political. In the Army, they don't talk politics. You don't right. talk AOC versus McCarthy. <laughs> right, right. You just don't. Yeah. It's no, not something there. You're there to do a job. I, I, yeah, so I get the, it. I get it. Obi, thank you. One thing you couldn't do today, you can't lie about your age. They'll catch you on that one. That's right. That's right. Uh, there's no 16-year-olds uh, signing up as fighter pilots these days. 800-848-9222. Bob is in Long Beach. Hello, Bob. Hello, how you doing, Frank? Hey, uh, let me tell you something. I I don't think, like, when I was drafted in 1967, and then I didn't really want to go into the service. I mean, I did it because, you know, it's my patriotic chore. But I don't think I ever would have joined. And I don't think anybody's, I don't know how, I don't know how the service is today. But when I went in, it was, it was terrible. And, you know, and then again, you got to understand something. There's so much infiltration in the country, like there's the Confucius Society, 300 and something thousand foreign exchange students from China. I'm sure there are foreign agents in here that wear TikTok and they're working on the mind. I don't know if they have the patriotic wherewithal to understand what was happening around them. And like I said, you could get people like me that will go if you tell them, hey, look, you got to go. You know what I mean? And also, I never got my pizza or my T-shirt. <laughs> you, you, uh, email me, and I'll connect you with our promotions people, Bob. Uh, Frank.Morano sure. at uh, WABCRadio.com. Uh, that's the best way. If somebody is owed something by this show, uh, th- there's very little I could do for you in the middle of a radio show. But if you email me, Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com, I will be happy to facilitate this. We're going to uh, review this with uh, David Pietruza in our third hour. I'm eager to get his take on this as well. Uh, but uh, if you want to comment, you can certainly do so. 800-848-9222. One open line if you want to jump on uh, online quickly. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. 
The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Music we're playing. Just uh, join our Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M O R A N O Radio Fans and Haters. You know, uh, last night, yesterday, I was invited to this uh, this great Christmas party that's hosted by um, a very big uh, media outlet. Right? I don't. It's not. It's not ours. Uh, but it's um, you know a lo- one that a lot of my colleagues were were at. Uh, I am sure that, uh, you know, Rita Cosby was there, Rudy Giuliani, a whole bunch of people. And I was at this party last year. It's an open bar, which is my kind of party. And I was I all set to go to this. I was looking forward to going. Uh, but I came, I, I woke up yesterday afternoon and still not caught up on a fraction of the things that I need to do for being away for four days, namely my email. I'm still trying to work my way through my email. It's, um, you know, I, I don't know how people, there are people out there who are busier than I am, and I'm sure who get more email than I am. I could never understand why the president of our radio network would never respond to an email. I could never understand it. So how, what effort does it take to respond to an email? I guarantee you, if this is how much email I'm getting, he's got to be getting five times the amount of email. And, now I finally understand what, where he's coming from in terms of email because, sure enough, uh, there there's email that I'm just now getting to that people spent days ago, and I'm still just so behind on this New Year's Eve Eve situation. So I opted not to go to that uh, that party. I feel bad because I had RSVP'd that I was going, and I don't like to be the kind of person that says I'm going to do something and then doesn't go but I just I, I couldn't bring myself to come into Manhattan five hours early to go to this party that I, I think ultimately people probably didn't even care if I was there or not. Uh, I'm still I'm behind on my text messages as well. I'm looking at my texts now. I see that I have uh, 52 unanswered text messages. My goodness. So if you're one of those people that has emailed me or text messaged me and I have not gotten back to you yet, I would just ask that you please be patient. Let me read you this quote. From the Dundee Evening Telegraph in 1945. Today is December 7th. 81 years ago, 
the United States was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the Empire of Japan, led to the American entry into World War II. And for the next four years, you saw a mobilization of this country, not just among youth, but youth, older folks, school children, men, women, um, the likes of which I don't think we had seen before or since. And uh, I'm wondering if the same thing occurred today, would the reaction from the American people be the same? Or because of different factors, uh, social media, for instance, uh, a decline in physical fitness among certain people, maybe a a decline in other aspects, maybe a decline in organized religion, for instance. Would we see the same thing occur today as we saw occur on a widespread basis, on a long-term basis in 1941, and at least on a limited basis in 2001. This is from the Dundee Evening Telegraph, 1945. Young people who spend too much. In youth clubs, where were young people, in youth clubs were young people who would not take part in boxing, wrestling, or similar exercises which did not appeal to them. The tough guy of the films made some appeal, but when it came to something that led to physical strain or risk, they would not take it. So they were bashing young people even in even in 1945. So it is interesting. Uh, I, I kind of think that every older generation loves to bash the the next group. Right. Um, this is let me read you this quote. Uh, well, OK, I could go on and on. The point is there are a whole bunch of quotes from older Americans and older people in other societies from throughout history that um, I think underscore the point that I'm trying to make. This is from 1938. Problems of young people, right? In Leeds, Leeds Mercury, parents themselves were often the cause of many difficulties. They frequently failed in their obvious duty to teach self-control and discipline to their own children. And then that is the group that subsequently went on to fight and win World War II, right? A, uh, 1936, Portsmouth Evening News, titled Young People Drinking More, 1936. Probably there is no period in history in which young people have given such emphatic utterance to a tendency to reject that which is old and to wish for that which is new. So I think we all, always like to complain about young people. My, my broader question is not just about uh, youth, but it's about a sense of unity. Would we see the same sense of unity that we experienced in 1941 and in, to some extent, 2001? And I'm skeptical. I don't know why, but it just feels, and maybe it's because I'm in this, right? I'm on social media. Uh, I'm in a field where people are increasingly hostile to folks that they don't agree with or don't see eye to eye with. And so maybe I'm living in a little bit of a bubble, which is why I like to do this show and throw topics out to you to see if maybe you can break through. Uh, the worst thing in the world at every level, government, media, life, is groupthink, right? That's why I think a fresh perspective is always, is always good. And um, I, I'm trying to find out if maybe I'm jaded because I'm surrounded by this kind of toxic polarization. And maybe we would snap to it if uh, it looked like America was under attack again. 800 848 
Linda is in Teaneck, New Jersey. Hello, Linda. Hello. That was <laughs> that was so nice. Listen, I don't think so. I don't. I think there's going to be a decrease in enlistment because there's no incentive. I mean, mm. they took God out of school. They put in drag queens. There's no border anymore. Um, no border, no country, right? And uh, citizenship doesn't exist. I mean, it, we're really losing the meaning of citizenship. Everybody's a citizen. You know, everybody's the same. Uh, we don't have any pride in being Americans anymore. Uh, they're taking that out. They're taking the, the flag, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance out of school. Um, so why would they show up? Well, um, fair fair point, Linda. Thank you. I mean, I guess, uh, hey, I, I guess that's one school of thought. 800-848-9222. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, Ron. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Frank, World War II, prior to us, when we got in World War II, it was not a unified country. Henry Ford refused to, uh, FDR's order to turn everything into military uh, equipment, his factory. And he, he was threatened with nationalization if he did not comply. And his his son, Etzel, forced his father to uh, start building bombers and tanks. So it was, it was – and the rich were not totally into this war in the beginning. They they tried to do a coup d'etat against FDR. Prescott Bush, the Bush uh, patriarch, he led the, the coup d'etat to try to topple uh, FDR. Right, but don't you, think, don't you think Pearl Harbor was sort of a game changer in terms of mass public sentiment – Yes, it was. My father, who served in World War II, three, four bronze battle stars, three years in the Pacific, when when the, the war was de, uh, declared, he jumped in his jalopy, him and his brother, Robert, and they headed to California because he knew he had, his draft notice was in the mail, and he wanted to get to a, a war factory to get a, a deferment and uh, uh, ride out to war in the United States with a paycheck. But no, he crashed his car because it ran out of gas. And the cops said, Uncle Sam's waiting for you. So, you know, even the, the this patriotism was not that hmm. really good. You know, we had, to, we had to be forced into this war, sort of, but uh, there were elements that did not want this war. And it's, you know, here, here's the thing, Frank. You know, we won World War II, just like we won the Civil War. But the South re- retook power, and they, they control this country today still. And the same thing when we won World War II, but we took in the Nazi intelligence, General Gellin. Wait, wait, we the, incorporated... uh, you, you lost me, bro. The South controls this country today? Exactly right. You look at the Supreme Court. It's a white supremacist oh, court. Ron, I, I can't. I, I just, I can't. Um, 800-848-9222. Aaron is in New Jersey. Hello, Aaron. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I think it's been a gradual decline of, of society for years, and, and uh, politics just uh, followed. I mean, maybe you had one or two politicians here or there that are trying to get back at each other and maybe trying to bring down the country with them. But uh, overall, I think it's been a gradual decline in, in society in general, which followed politically and uh Basically tearing the whole... So what do you think caused it? What was the impetus of it, Aaron? I'm sorry? What caused what you're describing? What caused? Like I said, you know, the 
gradual decline of, of society right, in general. Right, so what caused the gradual decline of society in general? What, what is the root of, of what you're analyzing? Um, are you saying what, what's my point of bringing that? No, no, Aaron, thank you. I'm gonna, I'll, give, I'll give a try to someone else. Neil in Staten Island, I know, is always bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Hello, Neil. Hi, Frank. You Hi. know, uh, the, the difference of 80 years ago uh, for patriotism and today is it's just night and day. Uh, the military is not attractive to people, even if we were attacked. Uh, I don't know what kind of attack you're thinking of. Well, I don't think let's, we'd ever attack like. Uh, I mean, uh, let's assume uh, something like uh, on the level of a September 11th, 3,000 plus deaths. Yeah. It, it, on American I, soil. I, I don't know if we would have something like that, Frank. I think if, if the U.S. was attacked, I think it would be more uh, of a nuclear uh, missile type attack. Which we are an isolated entity compared to uh, like Europe, you know, where everybody's together. Right. I mean, I think people thought the same thing in the run up to both the September 11th attacks and the Pearl Harbor attacks, though, Neil. No, no, you're you're, you're right, Frank. But it's a different time now. You know, uh, our our military is different. The youth today, I think they're more interested in pronouns than actually uh, joining (laughs) the. and And it's no joke. I have a friend in the Coast Guard. You know, she says, I used to uh, salute uh, the captain and say, you know, how you doing, sir? She says, now I say, how you doing, Ted? Uh, they, they go by their first name. She says, I've I never seen anything like it. You have no idea what's going on. And uh, I mean, in, in Annapolis, they're not graduating people because they didn't get uh, vaccinated. They're refusing their commissions. Wow. So uh, what kind of military do we have? You know what the Chinese do in the military, Frank? They teach them how to kill. That's all they do, teach them how to kill. But we don't do that. We're more interested in pronouns. So, And the youth today is just not the same as it, as it was 80 years ago. All right. Thank you, uh, Neil. Appreciate that. And thank you for your service as a veteran. Finally, we'll go to Joe in New Jersey. We'll let you have the last word. Hello, Joe. Yes, Frank. Good evening. Uh, I'm so happy to be an American in this country. Um, I want to liken this uh, war question. I'm not going to have an answer, but I liken it to sport. Like the last caller said, they're not teaching us to kill. Uh, And and to be on a team, uh, American team is is our armed forces. Uh, We lost after Korea, of course. We lost Vietnam, which I went to the candlelight service in in May this year for the Kent State shootings. We lost in, I don't say we won Iraq, Iran, and all the other countries in the Middle East, but but come on, who would want to join a team anymore? It's it's all these, you know, you're, you're not even paid well. And if you get hurt, the, the veterans don't help you out. It's it's crazy. Why would I want to join? Mm. Or why don't, why don't we draft women? I mean, this was one of my things, too. I'm like, Israelis, you have to serve a year. I think women, too. But well, I mean, I'm we're not, not sure. Uh, we're we're not really drafting anybody now. I mean, uh, it is true uh, that young men still have to register for the selective service, but they're not being drafted now anyway. Uh, thank uh, you, Joe. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas 
Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And kitties listen The great Frank Sinatra singing the song that Bing Crosby made famous, White Christmas. Well, you might remember, just about 24 hours ago, I offered a very rare prediction on the Georgia Senate runoff. I predicted yesterday that I thought, in spite of what the polls were suggesting, I said that I thought that it was possible. I thought it was my prediction was that Herschel Walker would emerge as the winner in the Georgia U.S. Senate runoff. And to the surprise of almost no one, I was wrong, as I generally am with any sort of political prediction. My record is like, is I think I'm 2 and 200 in terms of political predictions. A good bet if you're ever betting on politics is if I'm making a prediction on something that will happen in terms of an electoral outcome, if it's competitive. I'm not talking about a district that's 90% one way, but if it's a competitive race and I predict A, always go with B. And you'll be a very wealthy man. Raphael Warnock has defeated Herschel Walker in the Georgia Senate runoff. It looks like um, Warnock will have about 51.3% of the vote to Walker's 48.7% of the vote. A very close race. Uh, Warnock's victory expands the Democrat Senate majority to 51 seats, helping ease some of the procedural burden of a 50-50 chamber. We'll see what that means for governing for the next two years. Here was the recently re-elected Raphael Warnock last night. After a hard-fought campaign, or should I say campaigns, it, it is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. I will remind the people of the state of Georgia that had they had proper ranked choice voting like Maine does, not this crazy system that Alaska has, they would have saved the cost of a second election and could have been over and done with this back in November. Here was the Republican nominee, the gentleman who was defeated, former football star Herschel Walker. I want you to continue to believe in this country, believe in our elected official, and most of all, stay together. Don't let anyone separate you. Don't let anyone tell you that we can't, because I'm here to tell you we can. I'm here to tell you we can. And as I said early on, this God is good, and he's a good God all the time. He's a good God. So I want to say I'm never going to stop fighting for Georgia. I'm never going to stop fighting for you because you're my family, because I always, oh, I'm a, I'm a winner. We're all winners, so we're all winners, and that's what I want to say. We're all winners, and I want to say God is a good God. God bless you guys, and let me tell you, stay together, continue to believe in our elected official, always, always cast your vote, no matter whatever is happening, cast your vote, 
for all that. And God we trust. I do. And God we trust. Continue to cast your vote. Never, never, never give up. All right. God bless you guys. Thank you guys. Now, thank you. So that is Herschel Walker. He won the Republican primary. And a lot of folks uh, that supported his opponent in the Republican primary said that Walker would not be the best general election candidate. One, I do wonder if Herschel Walker has a political future. Can he run for U.S. Senate again uh, in 2026, for instance, from Georgia or some other office? Uh, What do you think becomes of Herschel Walker? Also, had the Republicans nominated someone else, would they have won today or would the result have been the same? Let's say they nominated uh, Brian Kemp, for instance. Would they have won? 800-848-9222. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I know we have a lot of listeners in Florida, and I know we have a huge number of listeners in New York, New Jersey, etc., that just dream of one thing, moving to Florida. I have a lot of friends that have made the plunge, a lot of family that has made the plunge to Florida. The more I hear about Florida, the more I come to believe that it is just a strange state. Now, who am I to talk? New York is a ridiculously strange state. But there's New York strange and there's Florida strange. Have you followed what is going on in Tampa? The Tampa police chief has quit. Now, you might think, why? What happened? Was crime spiking and was there a demand that she be held accountable? No. Was it a big corruption investigation? Was she accepting uh, gifts and bribes to give people gun permits or something like that? No. Was she involved in uh, uh, sexual harassment or blackmailing some of her surrogates? No. Only in Florida, kids. Only in Florida. The Tampa police chief has quit after trying to avoid... Yes, you guessed it, Floridians. You're the only ones who would. A golf cart. <laughs> a golf cart ticket. The t- Can you believe this? What is going on in this state? This woman has quit after trying to avoid a golf cart ticket. The pl- when does it stop? <laughs> Mary O'Connor. And her husband were stopped last month by a, I'm going to mispronounce the name of this community, I apologize, a Pinellas County Sheriff's deputy 
near the gated community where they live. And uh, she identified herself. She and her husband are riding around in a golf cart. She identified herself. Apparently, you're not supposed to be using your golf cart on the street. She, She identified herself, flashed her badge, and told the deputy, quote, I'm hoping you'll just let us go tonight. Close quote. <laughs> Here is a little bit of uh, the audio from the go- body camera footage of the police chief showing her badge to get out of this traffic stop. Listen to um, the the audio here. Stopped you because you driving tag or uh, unregistered vehicle with no tag on it on the roadway. Yeah, we were we went. To the club, it was closed, so we went over and picked up some... Is your camera on? It is. I'm the police chief in Tampa. Oh, how you doing? I'm doing good. Okay. I'm hoping that you'll just let us go tonight. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll say... Uh, not to say I, I, you look familiar, so... Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I do. Okay. So, all right, folks. Well, uh, have a good night. Staying over here in East Lake Woodlands? Yeah, yeah we live in East Lake Woodlands. Yes. Oh, uh, okay. All right. Well, it's nice to meet you. So, I'm Deputy Jacoby. Okay. Same here, my friend. All right. Take so, care of yourself. All right, Sorry take care. to bother you. All right, no worries. No worries. Like I say, we have a lot of problem with the uh, the golf carting around here. You know, everybody yeah, gets no, out. we don't normally come out. We never come out. Closed, we never, so we gotcha. never. the Greek place to get some food. And... Gotcha. Okay. All right. All right, then. We'll take care. And uh, it was nice meeting you. All right. <laughs> oh, all right. If you ever need anything, call me. Okay. Seriously. All right. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. You're welcome, sir. Thank you for your service. Thank you for yours. Thank you. Take care. All right. Thank you. Lock them up. All right. Okay. Let's break this down because I have to tell you, this is one of those instances where I think my opinion of the story did change when I read the facts of what occurred versus when I saw the uh, and heard the video. So a couple of things strike me about this. The chief, first of all, why are they in a golf cart? If you know that's not permitted, how much effort, I'm assuming they have a car, why would they just not get in their car and drive to the the club, which is the thing you do in Florida. You go to the club or the clubhouse. That's where there's all sorts of things. Why wouldn't they just drive? Or if it's a short enough distance, why not walk? Why put yourself as the police chief in an unnecessary risk like that? Second, I cannot understand for the life of me why this woman, Mary O'Connor, would say to the police officer, is your camera on? And then once it's established that this officer's camera is on, she then tries to act like a big shot. That's when she says... Well, I'm the Tampa police chief, and she's expecting, clearly, and she says, can you let us out of this? Can you let us go tonight? And Now, if I'm the police chief, one, you'd think you would live the life of, you'd live a monastic existence when you're not working. You wouldn't do anything to jeopardize such a high-profile job. But if you know you're being recorded, you got to think, dot your I's, cross your T's. Make sure you don't do anything that people construe as inappropriate. You have to be above suspicion like Caesar's wife. And then immediately 
when she says who she is, the deputy there says, well, he immediately decides to let her go. Um, he doesn't he I think he could have handled it a little bit differently and maybe said, uh, I'm going to give you a warning this time just for the sake of the camera, because I've been stopped by police officers when they've had their body cameras running. And they and, and, and I've said occasionally and not, this hasn't happened in a while, by the way. I've said, I'd appreciate it if you can make this a warning this time. And knowing that I'm on camera. And they said, yes, we'll go ahead and do that. You know, why wouldn't he say that? Second, when it's clear that this police officer is letting her go, she doesn't say thank you right away. In fact, if you listen to what um, she almost makes the sheriff's deputy almost like he's on the defensive, like he's in the wrong when they were doing the wrong thing. They were, he says, sorry to bother you. And she doesn't say thank you. She doesn't say the words, thank you, I appreciate this. We won't do it again, which is what you'd think that she would say. She doesn't say that until the end when she says, thank you for your service. She's not thanking him for his service. She's thanking him for letting her off the hook. Lastly, I don't know what the uh, penalty is for driving your golf cart where it's not supposed to be on the street in Tampa. I can't imagine it's very much. I mean, it's got to be the most insignificant traffic violation possible. Why wouldn't you just accept the ticket and move on? Now you're dealing with a major ethics issue, and sure enough, the mayor of Tampa... What would you do here if you were the mayor of Tampa and this body camera footage came to your attention? Is she out or is this such an insignificant thing that she would stay? 800-848-9222. The mayor of Tampa said on uh, Monday that the police chief broke ethic rules, ethics rules. The, uh, uh, this is a statement from the mayor. Tampa Mayor Jane Castor has requested and received the resignation of Police Chief Mary O'Connor, adding that she violated policies on standard of conduct and abuse of position or identification. Video released last week showed this November 12th incident in a suburb outside of Tampa. The deputy is seen explaining to Mrs. O'Connor and her husband that they're being pulled over for driving an unlicensed vehicle on the street. So I don't understand why she would have persisted in asking to be let go once she knew his body camera was on. I think she definitely, she loses some points for stupidity, in my view. But what do you think? Should she just be let go? Or should she have lost her job for this? And what becomes of her next? Where is she going to get employment? Now, I'm sure, I don't know anything about her career history, but I'm assuming she has a decent pedigree as a law enforcement officer. Where does she go from here? Who would hire her after this? Oh, you're the one that asked the police officer if his body camera was on and then asked to be let go for driving a golf car. 800-848-9222. Where do you think this goes? 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to John in Reno listening on the Nevada Talk Radio Network. We love the Nevada Talk Radio Network. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. I'll tell you, my friends in North Carolina... They all have golf carts at their house. And the way it works in North Carolina is 
as long as you stay in your subdivision, you can drive your golf cart and drink. You're not allowed to drive your golf cart on the main roads, but as long as you keep your golf cart in the subdivision community, you can drink and drive the golf cart. I don't know if she was drinking. Well, uh, I think her husband was driving, to be clear. But, yeah, the husband could have been drinking, um, although so far there's no evidence of that. Now, she apologized for this last week. John, do you think that should have been um, understood? She said I, I, she said uh, she understood how this matter could be viewed as inappropriate, but that was certainly not her intent. Should she be forgiven? Should she get to keep her job? You know, I would let her keep the job. To me, it's not a big deal. Um, the officer should have checked her husband to see if he was drinking or not. But uh, assuming he wasn't drinking, I would let her keep his job. Yeah, keep her job. I hear you, John. Thank you. I just, there's something about, my again, your attitude, John, was mine until I saw this tape. There's just something about the way that she handled this that doesn't sit right with me. Now, firing is pretty extreme. Should she be fired? I don't know. She should certainly be penalized. She, uh, Mrs. O'Connor, was sworn into office in March. Again, she's brand new. You'd think you would not step out of line one iota. She was sworn into office in March after serving for 22 years on the city's police force. In 1995, interestingly enough, she was fired as an officer after being arrested for attacking deputies during a traffic stop before being rehired the following year. Only in Florida, kids. Only in Florida. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to um, Jack in Manhattan. Hello, Jack. Hi. Um, basically, I, I, you weren't, I, I didn't get that uh, information before, but the, the fact that she got arrested once before with uh, the, it was not just a, a, a simple arrest. She actually was arrested, and then she actually had a fight with the arresting officer. So it wasn't just that simple where she just got arrested and let go, and then you know, uh, she actually there was an altercation with her. The other thing also is that one of the reasons why people were driving their golf course, uh, their you know, the carts around that area. It happens to be that she's not the only one that does that. It's an ongoing problem in that area. Well, that, that, the always, cop said that. The cop said that. Right, exactly. So, you know, she thought, you know, she'd get away with it, too, because, you know, everybody else does it. So she figured, OK, why not? And, 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 and it's not a normal thing that they would just drive. This is something that she was just, you know, taking her cart over to, you know, a, a short distance away from it. But nevertheless, it's illegal because it doesn't have a plate and it's not a registered vehicle for the road. So your opinion is the mayor did the right thing? Well, you know, it, it, it's not that. In hindsight, yes. You know, you you know, you can you can accuse her of anything you want. But the fact, nevertheless, is that this is an, this is this is something that the residents or whoever the members you know do on a regular basis. And she thought, you know, it would it would be no big deal. That's why she didn't really care that the camera was on or mm-hmm. not because you know mm-hmm. she thought, okay, you know, she'll talk to them, and you know, it, it, it's easy to you know to to. Um, accuse people and, and put people down after the fact, you know, you know, when, when all the other stuff comes out. But, you know, 
if you, if you actually look at it and, and, and at the time of the happening, it was just something that, you know, a normal thing to do. I mean, we do a lot of things that, you know, which is not necessarily legal at the time. But, you know, you figure, OK, I'm just, you, you know, um, people drive. I give you an example. People drive their their um, uh, tractors on their farm and it doesn't have any plates on it. There's no permit on it. There's no nothing, but it's on their land. OK, so now they have to go around to the other side of the barn. So they have to actually use, you know, the the uh, public uh, thoroughfare, you know, public street or whatever. So they go out to the, uh, you know, they go out to the street and they come right back on the other side of their barn. It happens, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like you're deliberately, uh, you know, breaking the law. Just well, to right. break I, the law. I get that, it's, it's Jack. Just... That, that's why I asked whether or not maybe she should have been given uh, just a warning and not l- losing her brand new job for what's seemingly right. such a minor infraction. I appreciate the call, Jack. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Ed is on Staten Island. Hello, Ed. Uh, hey there. Listen, I totally disagree with you. I mean, it was a minor incident, and no one should lose their career over something so minor. It's... Uh, I mean, I don't want to live in a police state where you get fired because you don't have a tag on your golf cart going three miles an hour. Do you? Absolutely not. And to be clear, first of all, I am barely on the side of her being penalized, right? Barely. And I think maybe even firing is a little extreme. I, I could have seen her maybe, I don't know, being uh, getting fined for an ethics violation or something like that. But the reason that she was fired was not because she was riding around a golf cart with no license plate. It's because, according to the mayor, she violated the ethics protocol and the standard of conduct that Tampa police officers are supposed to be upholding. So it wasn't the getting stopped that got her fired. It was her handling of the stop. Do you, do you ever hear politicians say to each other, now you got a chip in your back pocket, when you need it, I'll pull it, you know, pull it out and I'll cash sure, it in for you. Sure. Or, or lawyers, uh, professional courtesy. Cops trade favors. It's like a departmental bartering system. It's gone on for 50 years. That's the way the police departments work. Well, you're right, Ed. I think that it's you're in a different position if you're the police chief and you know you're being recorded. You know, I'm reminded, you talk about lawyers and you're right. I'm reminded... This, I just love the show Boston Legal. That's a strong candidate for my favorite show because, obviously, William Shatner is on it. And um, there's this one episode where James Spader's character, Alan Shore, is in negotiations. I haven't seen this in years, so don't quote me. But he's in negotiations with a legal adversary. And he he says, um, hypothetically, and I'm going to make up these numbers here, but hypothetically, let's say... um, Totally joking, of course, depending on your reaction. Let's say your client pays my client $200,000 to settle this and make this whole thing go away. And on uh, part of that and uh, an additional $25,000 directly to me, of which I would give you $12,000, right? And then the lawyer that he says that to says that is outrageous, that is inappropriate, completely sanctionable, and I should report you to the bar. And and then James Spader's character says to him, well, if that's your reaction, then I am joking. Now, that's the difference, is that you do things differently. Maybe it shouldn't be the case, but it is. You do things differently when you're under a microscope as compared to when you're not. That's the fact. 
It just is. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Steve in New Jersey. Hello, Steve. Hey, Frank. I actually called about your question from the prior hour. All right. Well, be my guest, Steve. It's your dime. Okay. Your question is understood. Well, let me put it to you this way. I have no zero to no confidence that adults under 40 would suddenly grow a pair, become patriotic, and if we were attacked similar to Pearl Harbor or to 9-11. Here's why. Two and a half years ago, Frank, in lieu of the COVID virus hysteric, the lockdowns and the shutdowns, were they willing to take to the streets and peacefully protest the gross deprivation of their constitutional rights? Hell no. What were they willing to do, Frank? Sit home, take the crumbs that the government dished out, all right, to get high with. When did some of them take to the streets? Well, after the death of St. George Floyd and they were that war was declared on the police. And then some of them were willing to take to the streets to riot, engage in riots bordering on anarchy against who they were told were the real enemies of society, the police. So you want to tell me that the this generation under 40 of patriotic Americans? Go ahead and make the case. I'll listen. All right. Well, I, Steve, I'm not making that case. I just think that um, – thank you, Steve – I just think that uh, there's a tendency of every older generation to bash their children's generation. I just think it's natural. I just, these kids today, they don't know how tough we had it. We'd walk uphill uh, two and a half miles to school each day with only one shoe. You know, these guys with their smartphones. Back in my day. Exactly. Right. Exactly. We had one shoe and we liked it. Exactly. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Ray is in the boogie down Bronx. Hello, Ray. Yes, Frank. Um, real quick, I'll make uh, two quick points. Uh, back the Greatest Generation, uh, World War Two. You know, you, I don't think we'll ever see anything like it again. Even though nine one one was um, a lot of people did join up, and it was a lot of patriotism that followed. But back on the police chief, I think you're missing one thing towards the end that the cop said to the the chief said to the cop. Is that is there anything I if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. So I think that might have been the ethics problem that uh, the mayor was looking at. But uh, just just a thought. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I could see that, right? I could see that. So you think it was the right move to fire her? No, I don't think so. What she said was wrong. I don't think it's fireable, though. I think, you know, a reprimand or whatever, or I don't know about fire. But she mm-hmm. did have another... Uh, uh, um, uh, another hothead case, though, like you said, I did, um, right, twenty eight year years ago, ago. twenty no, twenty seven yeah. years ago, nineteen ninety five. I'm sorry, yes, yeah, right. but right. I, yes. I don't yes. think that played a role here, Ray. It's clear, I think, that the mayor got embarrassed, and she, or, or potentially wanted to avoid embarrassment, I should say, and she wanted to make sure that um, she couldn't be criticized for keeping this woman on uh, when there was likely to be an avalanche of criticism. Thank you, Ray. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Jimmy is on Staten Island. Hello, Jimmy. Hello, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I think uh, she could find a lucrative job as a caddy. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, she clearly enjoys, um, you know, riding around in the golf cart, at least as a passenger. But uh, are you a golfer, Jimmy? Are you kidding? Never. Never. <laughs> so my understanding 
It, and I'm not a golfer, but my dad's a golfer. I have a lot of friends that golf. And my understanding right. is that you you really use caddies primarily on courses where they don't use golf carts. So if her thing is riding around in the golf cart, maybe she wouldn't be the best caddy. Maybe she could like run the drink cart that sells the drinks to the guys <laughs> on the golf course. Thanks, Jimmy. 800-848-9222. Hey, uh, we're going to talk with Cheesy Borden. In just a minute, he has a fascinating podcast called Tapes from the Dark Side, and it's all about uh, true crime. This season, they are investigating a a fascinating crime involving the shooting of Daniel Shaver. And it's a fascinating case that I knew nothing about before starting to listen to Tapes from the Dark Side. We're going to get into it in a minute. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents... What you're about to hear is not a news broadcast. Perhaps you can help solve a mystery. This is the Murano Mystery. About a year ago, I was exposed to a fascinating podcast hosted by T.Z. Borden called Tapes from the Dark Side. And uh, it takes a deep dive into true crime. If you want to know how and why people get hooked on true crime dramas, either on uh, in podcast form, in radio form, or in, on television, you need only to listen to uh, tapes from the dark uh, from the uh, dark side. It's a true crime podcast that has been out a couple of years, and they have a uh, a brand new season out that deals with a fascinating case. Uh, the show was created by T.Z. Borden, who is a former camera technician. He worked in the film industry for about a decade, and uh, here he is now doing this podcast, flattered uh, that he has agreed to stay up late with us. T.Z., it is great to uh, talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate hey, it. What is Tapes from the Dark Side? So it is a true crime podcast, serialized so that basically means we tell a different story each season um, over the course of maybe three to eight episodes, eight or nine episodes. In this new season, we're looking at a crime out of Arizona. It is a, a police shooting that the body cam footage went uh, kind of viral back when it happened. Um, but since then, it's kind of quieted down. And I just I just was fascinated mm. by the case the first time I saw the the body cam footage, and that's what kind of grabbed me. Yeah, I want to get into the new season in just a second, but folks who might be unfamiliar with Tapes from the Dark Side, I'd love for you to explain a lot of what you do that's just so unique. So much of what you do involves uh, using original uh, original audio or kind of primary sources in telling the story. Explain to folks who haven't listened to the podcast how that works. Sure. So it's kind of um, in the manner of maybe like a documentary you might see on 
investigation discovery, kind of in that vein, where we take a lot of clips, news clips, original footage, like Frank was saying, body cam footage, interviews, um, basically anything we can find that's relevant to the case. And then we try to pick out the most interesting pieces that tell a story. So I'm just kind of the narrator, just kind of guiding you through. And I try to stay neutral. I try Mm. to present this story and present these clips to you. And then, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have the answers. I try to present it to you and it's up to you to make up your mind. What I like about the multiple seasons of this podcast that I've listened to is that these were not cases, these were not crimes that I was familiar with. You uh, focus on bizarre and sometimes lesser known uh, true crime tales. Now, why why do you do that? Why not do um, a podcast about a crime that everyone knows about, the, uh, the, the Kennedy assassination or the George Floyd murder, for instance? Why do you pick ones that uh, you have to dig a little bit farther than page one to know what's going on? So much has already been said about those cases, and there's been so many documentary. I mean, Netflix, it seems like every month they have a new Ted Bundy documentary, mm, right. and that there's nothing wrong with that. It's fascinating. He's a fascinating character. But uh, between the cracks and in the gaps, there's so many figures that we've never heard of, and they might have had a, a slight spotlight, uh, maybe a few minutes in the spotlight, but they've since faded but underneath the surface, there is really just as much and sometimes even more interesting stuff than the big name cases uh, I found. Th- no, that's for sure. Uh, people are just tuning in. We're talking with TZ Borden. He's the host of uh, Tapes from the Dark Side. You can go to the website, uh, tapesfromthedarkside.com, or you can search Tapes from the Dark Side wherever um, wherever you get your podcast. Just search it. It comes right up. You alluded to the Ted Bundy documentary. I came across a statistic yesterday which shows that that documentary series has now been viewed something like over a billion times, which is astounding. Your podcast has been uh, enormously uh, successful as well. There's been incre- There have been over a half a million confirmed downloads of your podcast. Why do you think people are so hooked, whether it's books, whether it's radio, podcasts, documentaries, films, why are people so hooked on the genre of true crime? And what does that say about the psychology of the American public? That's a good question. I I know for myself I got interested in it because it's kind of a taboo topic that's kind of exists on the fringes of society. It's not necessarily something you can bring up at Thanksgiving dinner. So there's um, there's kind of a limited uh, area in society, in your life that you can really think about and discuss these kind of things. So I think when people find a little community, say it's a Facebook community or a, something like that, where people are talking about true crime, it's kind of like uh, enticing. And then these stories, uh, you know, the old quote that uh, truth is stranger than fiction. And I, I've found that to be absolutely the case. Um, the stories I've found in real life are way more dramatic than any Hollywood movie um, that I've seen. Mm. And so I think that's what that's what really gets people hooked in is, is, you know, these things really happened. I think that's that's the grab is that 
this could happen. Could this happen to me? Is there anything maybe I could learn from listening to this true crime a show that could prevent me from becoming a victim one day? Or, you know, those kind of thoughts, those kind of um, interests. Give us the Reader's Digest version of a couple of the cases that you've covered in previous seasons. So the um, Dylan Redwine murder was a 13-year-old boy in uh, Colorado who went missing. And this was the very first crime that that hooked me into uh, true crime podcasting because what we found out later was that the boy's father had just um, – he had been involved in uh, fetish – sexual fetishes that were – extremely, um, extremely depraved. And he had taken photographs of himself, um, doing some very depraved things. And we found out the 13 year old boy who was his son had just found those photographs Mm. on his computer just months before the son went missing. Now the son's skull, excuse me, the son's skull was found a mile as the crow flies from the dad's house. Um, and then they found the rest of some of his bones and, and so it just blew my mind, you know, it's an unimaginable crime. How could you, uh, do that to your own family? Mm. Um, and so that case, you know, went through the legal proceedings as, as we were kind of finishing it up and he ended up getting 48 years in, in prison for that crime. Mm. Uh, so Um, go ahead. No, I was just going to go to another case, but if you had a well, no, I, I, yeah, I do. People should check out tapesfromthedarkside.com and delve into the previous four seasons. They're all fascinating cases. Let's talk about the situation involving uh, Daniel Shaver. January 18th, 2016, he's fatally shot by a police officer at a hotel in the hallway of a hotel in Mesa, Arizona. Here's the trailer for season five of Tapes from the Dark Side. You know those dads who literally never sit down? That was Danny. He constantly was doing something either for them or with them. Hashtag girl dad, totally. We hope to one day have a son, which was taken from us. If you make a mistake... There's a very severe possibility you're both going to get shot. Do you understand that? Yes. Wanted to do our best to secure, make sure everybody was safe. So we started making verbal commands. Shut up. You listen, you obey. You started screaming. I would describe it as yelling very loudly. Please do not shoot me. Okay, listen to my instructions. I'm trying to do it. Don't talk. Listen. He's crawling towards the police, crying, please, please don't shoot me. The officer shot him five times. Do not put your hands down for any reason. You think you're gonna fall, you better fall on your face. Crawl towards me! <laughs> Jesus Christ, they murdered that guy! And, and he gets blood. he got off. And he got blood. off. They they murdered they, they killed this guy. I mean it looks it looks a lot like murder. Cop who killed, fired from the force, is now getting paid, collecting a taxpayer funded check every month for the rest of his life. She received a phone call from her eight year old school. She tried choking herself while she was at school and told her friend that she wanted to die. I lost everything in my life. Mesa's watching every single video on here, so I want to make this message very clear to them. I am not going to stop fighting until my husband gets justice. 
You didn't realize who you were messing with when you killed Daniel Shaver. I am Lainey Sweet. I'm his wife, and I will not stop fighting. Uh, TZ Borden, uh, host of Tapes from the Dark Side, is with us. That is the focus of season five. A very different, difficult, but very compelling trailer to listen to. Why did you pick the shooting of Daniel Shaver to focus on for this season? It was one of those things where the first time I saw that body cam footage, there's a you can go on right now. You'll have to sign into YouTube because it's age restricted. But if you search Daniel Shaver shooting, there's a five minute video of the body cam footage and it is very graphic. Um, It's raw, unedited, and it just kind of blew my mind. I, I, you know, we hear about um, police brutality. And I think sometimes in, in many cases it can be over overstated, maybe exaggerated. Um, but in this case, it just seemed so clear cut that something wrong had happened, that the police had acted in an unethical way. And it just kind of like, like I said before, it was one of those things that was in the spotlight for a moment and then it just kind of disappeared. Um, and so that's what I really wanted to focus in on it. Um, we're talking with uh, TZ Borden. He's the host of uh, Tapes from the Dark Side. How do you go about researching something like this, a case that's fairly recent, a case that takes place in an era where there is a lot of commentary on it, where there is uh, body camera footage on it? Where do you begin in terms of researching something like this? Well, one of the things that... Um, I wanted to find out as I started getting into it was what was the public's reaction? Because the body cam footage wasn't released until after the trial of the officer. The officer was actually charged with second degree murder, which in itself is a very rare thing. And we he was found, too many. found not guilty, right? He was found not guilty, um, but the footage didn't come out until after the trial, at least for the public. You know, every, the jurors got to see the footage. And what was what was very interesting to me, it, it was, um, I kind of could guess that mainstream media, more liberal media would be, you know, have a negative reaction to it. But as you heard in the trailer, we had, um, Glenn Beck, we had a clip from Ben Shapiro and we had, um, Matt Walsh writing an article and it. And I know earlier in the, in your show, you were talking about events that, maybe could unite the country such as 9-11 traumatic events. And I'm not saying this is anything like that, but it seemed like one of those moments that broke through the political divide and everyone could kind of see that something wrong had happened here. Um, right. Uh, ben Shapiro and Glenn Beck are not exactly known to be, um, you know, guys that uh, blame the cops for everything and rush to indict every police officer that's involved in a shooting. Right, exactly. Matt Walsh, I know, is another major conservative figure. I found an article he wrote uh, titled, quote, there's nothing conservative about defending police when they murder innocent people. So just very strong wording. Um, People seem to really agree, despite the jury's decision, that uh, a murder of some kind had occurred here. Yeah, it's uh, really a very, very sad situation overall. Now, I know there was some uh, there was some civil litigation involved in this case as well after the criminal trial, right? 
Yeah, it actually just was settled. Um, we put out some of our episodes early on Patreon, and right after we published the full season there, on the public feed, we're on episode um, four. Um, but right after we published the full season, so I had you know finished everything, the widow came to a settlement, um, very surprisingly, for uh, $8 million, which is fairly high. I think the parents only came to about a million and a half dollars. So it was a, it was kind of a breaking moment in the case. We thought they were going to go to um, trial in the civil case, but the, uh, the, the widow, I think had been so traumatized sure. by this whole experience. She wants to, she wants to try to move on in some kind of way. On, on the website, tapesfromthedarkside.com, you're selling t-shirts advocating for justice for Daniel. What would justice for Daniel look like at this point? The criminal case has been adjudicated. The civil case uh, has settled. What would be additional justice at this point? There's two issues. One that um, we'd be interested to see. It's a long shot, but the uh, the federal um, the feds announced they were investigating the case back in 2018. Now, we haven't heard any update. It's been four years. We know sometimes they come out years later and announce charges, but that is somewhat of a fading um, hope at this point. And the charges would be possibly against the officer who was giving orders. Now, he I see. currently, yeah, he currently lives in the Philippines. He retired shortly after the... Um, shortly after the incident happened and moved his family to the Philippines. Um, the other thing that we're hoping for, which I think is more reasonable is that the officer who fired the shots was fired from the department because he had an inscription on his gun that violated, um, policy. And after the verdict came out, he was, there was kind of a backdoor deal in Mesa where he was rehired um, then he was given a medical diagnosis of PTSD and he now collects $2,500 tax free every month, which he'll get until the end of his natural life. He was determined to be medically retired by uh, purposes of PTSD. So, um, we think that $2,500 a month payment was obtained unethically mm. And we think that it would be right for the city to at least discuss ending that payment. What has been the response, if any, to your work from Daniel Shaver's family? So I was in touch with Lainey Sweet for a little while, who was um, his widow, it, very in the very beginning of the case. Now these these this season took about a year to research and write and record, so. She had had agreed to do an interview with us. She really wanted just more eyes on the case. Um, right now, I've had some trouble reconnecting with her. I think it has a lot to do with her settling the civil case. So I'm not sure if she is open to that. Also, because she now settled for the $8 million, um, we were going to give half of our proceeds to help her and her kids. I'm not sure if she needs that anymore. I'm, I'm still trying to reach out to her. So if it doesn't happen there, we're trying to get some kind of uh, police reform mm. 
perhaps donation, something like that. Wow. Well, uh, as we've seen with the serial podcast, we've seen that uh, these crimes, the outcomes of these cases can very much be altered by uh, the interest that arises from folks doing podcasts like yours. So we're wishing you the the best of luck. I am curious. Uh, I, I am a big fan of the show on uh, Hulu, Only Murders in the Building, which deals with, it's a comedy, obviously, but it deals with the main characters hosting a crime podcast. Have you seen that show? And as somebody that actually does this, what did you think of it? I haven't seen it, but I've heard a lot about it. I've heard it's uh, it's pretty spot on. That's what I've heard from people. Well, yeah, we got to get yeah. you to come back and uh, give a review. Want to encourage people to check out the most recent season of Tapes from the Dark Side. Check it out, tapesfromthedarkside.com. TZ Borden, always appreciate you making some time for us. All right. Thank you so much, Frank. Thank appreciate you. It. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call at 800 848 9222, that's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Candy by Aaron Carter, who unfortunately uh, died very young recently, and uh, today would have been his birthday. So uh, to, why not play a little Aaron Carter music to remember his life and legacy? All right, 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Uh, Steve in Manhattan has been holding for a while. Hello, Steve. All right, Frank. In the uh, case down in Tampa, I would say she gets 25 to life, definitely. Um, (laughs) Well, she's not being charged criminally. Yeah, I think, yeah, she should be really charged. (laughs) No, of course, I'm just joking around. The mistake she made, and she seemed to be a courteous woman, but the verbiage you use, you have to be careful. Not right. only the, right. not only using the verbiage, but where you use it, because 
you know, obviously they're ready to leave. She goes to him, thank you. And if you ever need anything, here's my card. Call me. Now, if she says that before he lets them go, he's almost on the hook to the officer because it's like almost like he accepted something to let him go. So you have to watch out what you speak. Now, the husband was smart. He wasn't saying so much. Let the officer talk and then just let it you know, develop how it will develop, and then you'll have no problems. I got to be I, just honest, get- I, I don't think anybody on that tape was smart because if you're the husband, if you're the wife, if you're, the, why wouldn't you just say, "All right, I'll take the ticket. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be doing this, or I made a mistake. I'll take the ticket. What could it be? Seventy five dollars." Right, it's not a, but it would be embarrassing because the police commissioner would be driving around in a golf cart with no license plates. Well, husband's driving, but she's in the cart. It would look embarrassing politically toward this to, to uh, Miss O'Connor. But the thing is, uh, you know, we're New Yorkers. We're not used to seeing people on the street driving golf carts. Well, we you have see a lot it of in Jersey. Lunatic- you do see it in yeah, Jersey. I know that, but in New York City, I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, we do have a lot of lunatics on the road who don't belong on the road with bikes, scooters, riding on the sidewalk. But the thing is, you just got to be careful of the verbiage there. I, I think she should never. She was asked to resign, and they made, and then she resigned. I, I think because of the political climate that we live in today, she is being used as an example to show that look, we're going to come down on law enforcement. They just sign. The woman was driving in a golf cart. Come on, but listen. In a decent society, she gets away with it, and she just makes an apology. I did a mistake. Now, I just want to say something about the Georgia race down there. It's obvious to me that there are a lot of crossover voters because um, when Kemp won, he won by like 300,000 votes. Where did those 300,000 votes go tonight? So maybe there are some Democrats that cross over, maybe some Republicans that stayed home tonight. You have your answer to voting. My answer to voting on statewide elections is have all the statewide elections during the presidential election year. Because if you notice, that is your highest turnout for voting, and you'll have all your voters out there, and you'll have your best glimpse of how the state is really feeling. Look at the numbers during a presidential race with the, with the uh, when the people come out to vote, folks. Well, uh, thank you, Steve. Yeah, I, I get that, right? I get that, and there's a strong argument to be made for that, right? Having these local offices when the when you elect the president because of presidential turnout the the contrary opinion to that is um is that you have a lot of people that are interested in the presidential race they're not necessarily interested in some of these local races and then they come out in those local races and end up casting less informed votes in those local races that's the kind of the counter rationale i see both sides of it i'm not really I don't really have an opinion in terms of what what is the better way to handle it. I could see the pluses and minuses of both. Andy B. on Staten Island. Hello, Andy B. Andy! Hey, I'm here. Hey, what's going on, brother? Nothing. I almost dropped my guitar. I got all excited. You picked up for me finally. Hey, you know, uh, I, I missed telling you. You know, I was with Curtis the first night or two that he started in on you, and I fought with him for about 35, 40 minutes. And Avery was, like, trying to, like, be in, you know, the mediator. But you know what? We finally called, had people call, and people liked our song. Nobody picked, you know, I got Curtis to do a little thing after the news was over, and he picked up a few calls, and nobody even liked that song that was written for him. Our song is like a slow funk jam. 
That's why that was a funny letter. That guy Neil wrote it yesterday. <laughs> he was listening to it faster. Right, I think that was uh, that was Gino, uh, but uh, yeah, that was funny. Yeah, it was. was it was indeed. It was indeed. Uh, At least the song goes by faster. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, thank but you. You know what? I fought for you, bro. I never wanted to say nothing because I fought with Curtis. I don't want to fight with Curtis. I love Curtis. I'm like you, you know. I'm like in shock that the guy is going there, but hey, he's trying to get your listeners. He's trying to get whatever he can. Believe get. me, I appreciate the. Free promotion from Curtis, from uh, exactly. from anybody that wants to give it to me. Absolutely. It's like P.T. Barnum said. Doesn't matter what they're saying. You want to be an entertainment as long as they're talking about you. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I don't think that's a perfect. I don't think that's a, a perfect philosophy. But I think it's it's more tr- it's more true than untrue. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate your loyalty. Uh, that's for sure. 800-848-9222. Alan is in Queens. Hello, Alan. Hi. Good morning. Morning. Uh, I want to say a few quick thoughts. I agree with you that uh, you said a while back to a, to a caller that stop politicizing every issue. It's not productive. And in if, if there's a debate, the one subject that a person is least likely to change their mind is politics. Somehow they, they, they seem uh, entrenched in one side or another. And I say to you that one of the stupidest things a person could do is blindly vote for party over who's the better Alan, candidate. I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm a big advocate of nonpartisan elections for that reason. Thank you, Alan. Uh, coming up next hour, it is the 81st anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack. We'll break it down with historian David Pietruza. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I've often said that I wish more people would reach out to me asking advice in the Ask Frank Anything portion of the show. Well, one listener did, but I thought this discussion was so interesting that I was not going to simply limit it to either Ask Frank Anything or to uh, email when we read the email. I thought it might require a little bit of a, a little broader discussion, and it has to do, of all things, with wind chimes. Now, I like wind chimes, but I, I really have never spent much time thinking about them or talking about them or wondering about them until now. Now, when I did think of wind chimes, it was usually because of terrific cinematic or television depictions of wind chimes, like when Kramer decided to take a little bit of the gestalt of any town USA, a little bit of suburban life, and put it right in his mid Man- his Manhattan apartment hallway. Barbecuing tonight? Yeah, right after the fireworks. <laughs> now there's no wind in his apartment, so in his apartment hallway. So he he would press the wind chimes himself to jiggle them himself. 
I like wind chimes. We have wind chimes on our front porch. And uh, when we had an apartment with a back terrace, we had wind chimes on our back terrace. I love it. I find it very serene. Let me read you this letter I received, and then I'm going to invite you to comment. Dear Frank, my neighbor has a set of wind chimes. He put them up in the summer on a nice day, and it was quaint. Then he left them there. They have become a constant source of annoyance, especially in inclement weather, as the metal rods slam into each other, carrying tinkling sounds past my skull. I don't want to talk to him about it because he just moved in about 15 months ago. I don't want him to get offended, move, and be replaced by someone who might put up inflatable decorations. Those people, this parenthesis, those people should be hanged. These are not my words. This is the words of the emailer. Am I justified in sneaking over one night, removing the wind chimes, and stuffing them in his mailbox? Would it be better to mail an anonymous postcard threatening to blame him for climate change if he doesn't remove his wind chimes himself? Sincerely, nocturnally disturbed. Except, And then there's a P.S., Except for the signature, this is not fiction, and this subject is surprisingly divisive. And then he includes a link to uh, a whole bunch of online discussions about people who either love or hate wind chimes as they come up with a decision on what to do. Now, I, I am in the pro-wind chime camp. And part of the reason I like wind chimes is... There's so many different styles. Now, I, I do have to say, if I had an open window during the summer and I was trying to take a nap, and I, I tend to take a nap at odd hours or sleep at odd hours because of my nocturnal schedule, I tend to think that a lot of the people listening right now also probably tend to sleep at, uh, at odd hours. Maybe the wind chimes would bother me. I have to tell you, I think you're making way too much of this. It, I can't imagine these wind chimes could be that loud that in the winter when your door is closed, when your windows are closed, that they're still bothering you. How could that be? I mean, if we're talking about a level of wind chime that's that loud, then clearly something has got to be done because those aren't wind chimes. That's a, uh, you know, that, that's a pipe organ at this point. So uh, I like wind chimes, but even if you didn't, let me put myself in your position. If uh, you're, if the, if the luster is off the wind chime at this point for you, then I think you really need to talk to this person. I totally understand where you're coming from. I am, as everybody that knows me will tell you, my preference in handling everything is to handle things in a passive-aggressive manner. I am Mr. Passive-Aggressive. If there comes a choice between confronting someone about what is really bothering me that they've done or passively talking about them on the radio, 99 times out of 100, I will always choose the passively talking about them on the radio. And this includes uh, friends, family, co-workers, you name it. I will always vent my frustrations with that person on the radio. So I, I understand where you're coming from. It can be difficult to confront someone like this. And it seems like you 
get along well enough with your neighbor, wind chime aside. But let's say um, you can't do that. Either you have to suck it up and deal with it. Um, I don't think you can. I don't think you should even consider taking the wind chimes off without permission and stuffing them in the mailbox. I do have to tell you because of that that Netflix show with Bobby Cannavale that everyone's talking about. I haven't seen it yet, but because of that Netflix show where the Watcher, that's it. Because of that Netflix show, the idea of an anonymous postcard does have some appeal to me. But I think he's definitely going to know it's you. I mean, unless you live on a super crowded block where uh, it could be any of a dozen homes that are annoyed by his wind chimes, he's definitely going to know it's you. And I can tell by the tenor of the email that you've written to me in this instance and a bunch of the other emails that I've gotten from you that you're one of these people. You're one of these people that's easily annoyed by things. You're not really a kind of shrug your shoulders off and move on kind of a person. I suspect even in the 15 months that your neighbor has lived there, he's already come to realize that you're not really a shrug things off kind of a person. So my view is you should either A, deal with it, or B, talk to him. Those are the two options that I see. But more broadly, I'd be curious if people out there are more like me and you like wind chimes. I wouldn't say I love them. I think my wife really likes them because I I can picture her putting them up. And I wouldn't think to put them up, but I like them once they're there. Um, But uh, I'm also, I'm definitely not in the strongly dislike wind chimes category. Where are you? Pro wind chime or anti wind chime? This might be the only issue that's more divisive than uh, Trump versus Biden. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, I'm going to make predictions about our illustrious staff here. Matt Blaze, you are 100% definitely anti-wind chime, right? I'm not anti or for wind chime. Oh, you're I, not? No, I think I don't right, have so. them or anything, but I, I, I remember, I'm trying to think, I think my mom, when I was a kid, had we had wind chimes. Now, you live in the suburbs, right? Yeah. yeah. When, when In Rockland County, I, I think we had wind chime. I, I kind of remember that we had some kind of... Wind chime. And yeah, I don't understand. If your windows are closed. Right, during the winter. During the winter. And right. he's because he's saying like they're frozen and they're clanking together. And you're right in the assessment of every solution this guy had was aggressive. Like I'm gonna take him down and shove him in the mailbox. If you could I'm gonna see, write a nasty letter. If you could see the emails that I get from this person, I'm I'm assuming it's a guy, but if you right. could see the emails that I get from this person, it would not surprise you at all that this no. was their solution. It's like why can't you just say, Hey, let me knock on the door and say, you know, listen, I don't know if you realize that your wind chimes are a little loud and they're clanking because they're kind of frozen, if you wouldn't mind taking them down. Or to write a letter, an anonymous letter, nicely. You don't have to be aggressive about it. Because if you're aggressive, Frank, if you got an aggressive letter, you'd keep them up. Oh, well, I, I'm a different different type. Right. But, but you know what, though? I don't think it's possible to really write a, an anonymous letter nicely, right? You either are being nice about something and you are going to, you know, say your name or you're being a jerk about it and you right. don't want your name said. There's no way of n- anonymously writing a well, you can't just be in- polite note. Why why is that? Because it's, it's anonymous. Just, it's just not you think it's, it's just anonymous? not. It's just, because if you're polite, you 
are not ashamed of your politeness and you will you will live by your reputation right but um but uh my so my prediction was i would have predicted that you were very anti wind chime it, it turns out i was wrong you are not very anti wind chime you are wind chime agnostic and i would have predicted alex barnard here is very pro wind chime let's see how i did on that one uh you're right I'm right on that one. Yeah, we um it, at my uh, family's house in Pennsylvania, we used to have wind chimes uh, that were on our porch. I don't know what happened to them. I think they might have been lost uh, due to the damage that we had from uh, Hurricane Sandy. But um, I will say, when I was cutting the sound for the uh, of the wind chimes, I I almost became like entranced for a second. I kind of zoned. Like, it's, it's very serene. Yeah, it made me. It made me feel very, very calm, very at peace. And who, who you know, the person who's writing these e- the, these uh, notes is a real jerk. I think. You I know? think that um, you know, very aggressive. It's. I do find it pretty ser- serene as well. Again, I wouldn't. I don't know that I'd go to the trouble of putting them up myself, but I enjoy once they're there. All right. So my prediction would have been. Uh, so I was right about you. I was half wrong about Matt, and I would have predicted Kenneth was the one who was wind chime agnostic. Where are you on this, uh, Kenneth? Well, we have them on the front porch at my house, and my room is right near that front ah. porch. So I do hear them at night, but to me, they're very peaceful. Now, maybe this guy prefers live stream crimes when he goes to sleep <laughs> to help him sleep at night. But I actually like the very funny song. If people hey, that's that's very funny. Kenny. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, Alex is listening to this. Right. He's feeling very serene. Yeah. And that's and when he's he ready. And then all of a sudden, it's... <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> I could fall asleep to, to both of those things. <laughs> Well, people have different aspects of their personality, right? Sometimes True. you need a, a wind chime. Sometimes you need a little live streamed crimes. Uh, how do people get that uh, live streamed crimes again? They can download live streamed crimes as well as the full album that that is a part of, which is called Amatory Mass on Spotify, iTunes, uh, any of your favorite streaming platforms. Just look up Amatory Mass by Face Stealer. All right. We can add some wind chimes to uh, live streamed crimes. <laughs> live streamed chimes. There, there you go. go. Yeah. See, that's, that's good. You should do that. See, that's creative. Yeah. All right. Uh, well done, Alex. All right. 800-848-9222. Pro or anti-wind chimes? Because the most interesting part of that email that that fella sent me was the link to all these online discussions of people bashing each other like they're in the Murano Radio Fans and Haters Facebook group over wind chimes. Where do you come down on it? 800-848-9222. Joe in Ronkonkoma. Hello. Hey, Frank. I uh, hope you had a great trip to, uh, to Mexico. Thank you. Uh, I am pro wind chime. Uh, my, um, many years ago, my uh, uncle, uh, my wife's uncle from Mississippi sent those up, these wind chimes. And it, I find it so relaxing. You know what annoys me? And I can't believe someone would even do write something like this. I have a neighbor right behind. I don't say a word because I have dogs, but their dogs are outside, Frank. And I work overnight, so whatever sleep I'm like you, I can get. I'm, I relish. Their dogs bark constantly. That's a reason to write a note. Wind chimes. I don't know. I, I just find it. It actually makes me go to sleep when it's a. A gentle wind outside. It's the fall. I have my window open. 
I find it relaxing. So do I. Uh, yeah, I think this is uh, an area that you, Alex, and me are all in agreement on. Uh, Joe, thank you. Lou on Long Island, however, disagrees. Lou, give me your take. I despise wind chimes. I find them an intrusion on my peace and quiet. And for neighbors, I have neighbors that have them, and I have not said anything to them about it. But for them to think it's pleasant for them to not consider that it's not pleasant for me. It's like random Miles Davis clinking. (laughs) I love the way you put that. Lou, let's say I, I get it during the summer when you keep your windows open or maybe the spring. But during the winter, when your windows are closed and your door is it closed. It wouldn't bother me then. No, that's fine. Okay. Gotcha. I, I had a neighbor behind me, and I hate to admit this, but it's true. They had – that wasn't wind chime, chimes. They were bongs. And my bedroom window is directly – not directly, off to the side of it. I got so fed up, I hate to admit it, cover of darkness, I went over and I cut them down. I'm guilty. I admit it, but I just could not take it anymore. What? I'm I'm sorry. I I regret it now. It was a very hasty, wrong decision. What about doing like what The Rock did? He came clean with stealing Snicker bars from a 7-Eleven. So I should go go and buy them a new wind chime. I think that would be nice. Well, they don't live there anymore. (laughs) Maybe you could get a forwarding address from the Board of Elections or something. No, I, I felt guilty about it, but I was I just could not go to sleep. I could not sleep and it just got the best of me. Lou, you really have to despise wind chimes to go to the trouble of cutting the You're not this guy that wrote me this email, are you? Oh no, sir. No, okay. no, no. So no, no. Um, you... no, I would not I would not uh send an anonymous postcard. I, I have asked some neighbors, I said, listen, you know, could you just move it to the other side of the yard, you know, just so that I don't hear it quite as much. And they oblige. They understand. But I think it's I don't think it's right for someone to think that it's soothing to them to not consider a neighbor such as myself that don't think it's soothing. I don't like random noises. Uh, They just kind of set me off like a siren and things. I kind of jump. Well, uh, I can understand a siren. But to me, a siren is much more jarring than a wind chime. What advice would you give to this fellow that emailed me about how he should handle the situation? I would say that he should just go over there very politely and ask them if they could move it to a different location. Yeah, I, I, th- that strikes me as very reasonable. I uh, I had no idea yeah, that... Don't we- do what I did. <laughs> do not do it. Yeah, scared straight. The Lou from Long Island story. Thank you, Lou. I had no idea wind chimes were this polarizing, but apparently they are. You have Joe from Ronkonkoma on one side. And you have Lou from Long Island on the other. Where do you come down? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Coming up in a minute, we're going to talk a little bit with uh, David Pietruza, terrific historian, one of my favorites, about the uh, anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, how it changed America, how it changed history, and some facts about the Pearl Harbor attack that you may not know. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Gina is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gina. Hi, Frank. Frank, I have to chime in. Excuse the pun. <laughs> I bought a bunch of wind chimes on sale at the end of the summer, and the lady in the store standing next to me said, oh, your neighbors must hate you. <laughs> so this is a thing that everybody knows about. Well, I didn't, I didn't think of that until she said it. So I have them in my home instead of outside on the terraces. 
Well, I think that um, that's true. But, but in your home, you're not getting much wind, are you? Well, you know, where I have them placed, like I have them on both sides of my shower curtains. So when I move the shower curtain, they tinkle. Like I have ways of making them work for me and they make my environment very pleasant. Good. So I'm with you. And I think you, you, it sounds like you're a super considerate person that your neighbors are, are lucky to have you. But I think it's it's such a shame that you have been shunned essentially or pressured into moving your wind chimes indoors instead of having them outdoors where they belong and where a lot of people in the neighborhood might enjoy hearing them. I'll tell you the truth. Uh, my neighbors underneath me complained that they heard my radio too much. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, that's where we draw the line. With the, it can't be any consideration of turning down your radio. Can you, in fact, turn your radio off. Make sure they hear what they're, what, what we're doing. Gina, thank you. Good luck. 800-848-9222. Mark in Rockland, are you pro-chimes? So I am pro-chimes. I live in the suburbs. I live in Rockland County. Um, for me, when I listen, when I go to sleep at night, when I'm in my bed and I hear that train all of a sudden make that noise, that honk, I'm like, this is why I live in the suburbs. I don't hear it during the day. This is why I get it. And you know what? My property is quite large, so I get to hear it so I can put it up and not have to worry about my neighbors not hearing it or my neighbors, yes, hearing it. But something I also have is when it's too much, I put them inside the house. Oh, you do? Well, you don't hear them, but they're still there. What would you do if a neighbor, um, to avoid what Lou in Long Island did where he cut down someone else's wind chimes – what would you do if a neighbor came over and said, look, I know you really like these wind chimes, but they're really disturbing to me. Uh, they're a lot louder than I'd prefer. Is it possible for you to move them? What would your reaction be? My reaction would be um, if someone asked me to move it, um, I, would, I, I would do that because it's just a wind chime. It's not really the end of my life. Right. But, um I live in the suburbs. I have quite a large yard. I live on a third of an acre, so they can't hear it. I'm trying not to bother anyone. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, thanks, Mark. I think that's very reasonable. 800-848-9222. Joan is in New Jersey. Hello, Joan. Hi, Frank. Hi. I have about 12 of them outside. They're on my porch. A couple are, are hanging outside, the ones I first started with many years ago, the brass ones. And I've been collecting them. And then I have one inside hanging on my fan. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what's the matter with this fan. They don't make that much noise, no, really. Of Some not. of them are that so quiet that you have to stand underneath them to hear them. I have bells. I have bamboo. The bamboos are wonderful. They make this kind of clicking noise. I have some that it would take a very strong wind to move them. I, I mean, you know, I would tell that man, move. <laughs> Joan, let, like let's say someone, it sounds like you're a very experienced wind chimist. If someone yes. is looking to st- just put their tiptoe in the beginning of the wind chime pool, what's a good starter wind chime? What's a good wind chime for people to get started with? Any particular brand or style that you'd recommend as people begin their wind chime, I don't know, hobby? Well, you have to get something where a knocker hangs down 
and it hits against, um, you know, against something else that hangs down, whether it's bars that hang down and you have a knocker in the middle, or the bamboo are really very nice. But whatever you don't do, you don't one that requires the whole thing to swing back and forth to hear it. The, the knocker has to be sort of separate uh, from whatever it's hitting against. Am I being clear enough? I think there? so. I think so. But it, so it yeah. sounds like bamboo might be a good wind chime to get started bamboo with. Bamboo is wonderful because it's a, a kind of mild, lovely sound. I have one that's a tiger. In fact, I was going to give it to people for a wedding present. Oh, once. That's yeah, nice. and then I decided. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't give my brother-in-law his wedding gift yet. Maybe that's a good gift for them, wind chimes. Oh, yeah. And there's if you go to a garden center, they have usually many of them. I mean, some of them are like $140. In fact, I had somebody steal one uh, that was it was had broken. Something about it had broken, and I had it, you know, outside on the back porch. I just left it there. And then, you know, when I finally got the right string, I went to look for it, and it was gone. I was so upset because my goddaughter gave me that. And then I went to look for a replacement for it, and one like that would have been $140. Mm, uh, That is uh, rough. I'm sorry that you were burglarized, but it sounds like maybe somebody in our audience— I it was a tenant. (laughs) I I bet you it's one of these guys that's calling in that's anti-chime. Joan, thank you for the call. That guy better not set foot over here, I'll tell you that. Larry on Long Island, pro-chime or anti? Uh, real simple. To your last caller, Joan, what's next? You're going to put a Mr. Softy truck in the backyard or a good humor truck? She's crazy, okay? She is out of her mind. Anybody pro-chime should never have the right to vote again. It is insane. I have... Exactly. Uh, exactly. I had a neighbor <clears throat> who lived next door to me for a lot of years, and then she moved in to the house that I was living in downstairs. She put up chimes. Frank, it, it was like Niagara Falls. Slowly I turned. It was, but she was really nice about it. She was an older woman. She said, I'm so sorry. I'll take it down. I helped her take them down. Frank, they were made in China. It was no surprise, Frank. They well, were first, made first in of all, China. First of all, a lot of things are I made mean, in what, China. What, what comes first, Frank? What comes first? Chimes and then fentanyl? It's all from China. <laughs> I'm telling you. You're right. It's wind chimes, TikTok, and fentanyl. In that order. Exactly. In, thank, exactly. You, thank you, Larry. Joe in New Jersey, pro or anti-chime? Pro-chime. Pro-chime, okay. Okay, so... This is this is what happened to me. I have a neighbor behind me, and he kept on calling the cops because of his motion detector going off, his ADT. And it was... I, I have deers in my backyard, and the deers used to set off his motion detector. Well, one day I looked at the guy's house, and I could see over his fence into the next neighbor's yard. And he had these windmills up, and these windmills were turning. And the only thing that I could figure is he probably put the motion detector on the other side of the house in the other guy's yard, 
and the guy put the windmills up to blow away his uh, motion detectors. Well, but there's a big difference between windmills and wind chimes, right, Joe? But I just thought it was funny that this guy's calling the cops on me and getting me for motion detectors, and the guy on the other side, I think you have a neighbor that gives one person trouble, I guess, He's giving everybody trouble. It could be, Joe. Thank you. Uh, We're going to have to give you the last word. David Pietruza is waiting in the wings. He is my favorite historian, uh, at least living. And uh, he is a a brilliant man, especially when it comes to presidential history. Today is a day that FDR told us would live in infamy. We'll take a look back at what happened and uh, what the legacy of the attack on Pearl Harbor 81 years ago has been. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. to remember Pearl Harbor. That is what so many people do every December 7th, a date which at least one president told us would live in infamy. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Here to help us break that down, because every year there are fewer and fewer people alive who remember this as a memory, not a historical event. So here to help us break down some of the history of what transpired is David Pietruza. He is an award-winning author and presidential historian whose latest book is Roosevelt Sweeps the Nation, FDR's 1936 Landslide and the Triumph of the Liberal Ideal. David, good morning. It's great to talk with you again. Good to talk to you. Uh, David, I'm going to have you back uh, because I actually like to read the books that you write and ask you questions based on what you've read. But uh, briefly, tell me about your new book, Roosevelt Sweeps the Nation. What uh, Clearly, it's about the election of 1936, but what specific aspect do you focus on in the new book? Well, um, what it is is about how much division there was in the country. And while it was a big landslide, it was not necessarily going to be a big landslide. The Depression was still going on. 
13.9% unemployment on Election Day. That makes a difference. So FDR had to convince the country, was the glass half empty or was it half full? And the four years he had been in office previously, he had pretty much convinced the majority of the public that to trust him if there were mistakes, if things were had to be done further, he would somehow think about it. But there, the opposition, which was a large part uh, populist, uh, Huey Long would have run against him in 1936 if he had not been shot in 1935. Father Coughlin, the radio priest, was stirring things up against him. A lot of people who had been for him in 1932 were against him, like segments of the Democratic Party, the past two Democratic presidential nominees. Uh, there's uh, populists uh, in the Midwest who are upset with his farm policy. And, and of course, there's what's left of the Republican Party. So uh, the early polling, and not even some of the early polling, Frank Gallup has, Gallup, uh, has Alf Landon, the very, very lackluster Republican nominee, ahead in the Electoral College hmm. in July and says this is going to be one of the closest elections in this century. Well, that didn't turn out to be the case. He wins carrying 46 states uh, and um, carrying all but eight electoral votes. But it didn't have to be, and we and um, it's also interesting to see how very uh, different the campaigning was. How there are big periods of time when neither of the candidates are campaigning. Roosevelt goes off for two weeks and just just floating around on a boat, sailing after the convention. So uh, a lot of differences, a lot of similarities in terms of how people are are ginned up one against another but also that we don't have the perpetual campaign that we now have. I know uh, I've read many of your books, and I know you've written about figures other than presidents, but you've written about presidents that have been both Democrats and Republicans. You've written about presidential campaigns, including Democrats, Republicans, and third-party people. One of the things that I think tends to frustrate a lot of people who enjoy learning about history is it seems that many historians, they tend to inject their own political views, whatever they happen to be, liberal, conservative, whatever, into a, a writing of history. How challenging is it for you to sort of keep your own politics at bay as you chronicle the history of something that was not too long ago, less than less than uh, 90 years ago? Well, I think there's a very loud inner voice in me that, that forces me to do that. And and there's also I, I feel that there are all these readers maybe looking over my shoulder who are going to mm. say, yeah, but you didn't mention that, you know. And it's like, okay, that that's worth mentioning. We we really need to know what the context is and what the back and forth is. Um, on, on the other hand, it is a little easier to say say a bad thing about. Oh, Franklin Roosevelt, or Theodore Roosevelt, or who, or some, or the Republicans uh, running in 1936. Uh, people don't take as much offense as <laughs> if you say something about your team right now right. when everyone just goes ballistic. Right. So you you do have that sort of, of freedom. Yes, it's easier to throw a biographical punch at uh, Herbert Hoover or FDR than it is Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Yeah, and I, I throw, I, I swing both left and right that way, and 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 in in a way, it's it's it, it's a 
a detriment because maybe I would be better off in terms of sales if I took a polemical side on these uh, David, I wrestle with the same thing on the radio. Believe me, I'm glad you chronicle history exactly the way you do. Uh, the latest book is Roosevelt Sweeps Nation, FDR's 1936 landslide and the triumph of the liberal ideal. Uh, talk to me about uh, the Pearl Harbor attack 81 years ago. What did this uh, this attack mean for America, America's involvement in World War II, and how did it transform life in America in general? Well, America didn't want to go to war. And the war had been going on since 1934, 1939, excuse me. And um, we've been inching closer and closer to it. We had Lend-Lease, where we were supplying the Allies, both good and bad, i.e. Britain and, uh, and, and China and the bad, uh, the Soviet Union, with uh, the arms necessary to combat the, uh, um, the uh, Nazis, the Japanese. But what uh, we were, with the Japanese inching closer and closer to war as the Japanese become more and more aggressive. You know, first they take Manchuria in 1931. Then they invade uh, mainland China. Then one of the flashpoints is that that old hot spot in the world, Vietnam or French Indochina. And they occupy, the North, they occupy North Vietnam to to cut off supplies to China in 1940. Then they occupy the rest in 1941, and that's when Roosevelt starts cutting off trade with Japan. Now, they need all kinds of stuff from us. Mostly another hot point is oil, and they need they get over 90% of their oil from us. So when we cut off their um, air, uh, or I mean all their uh, trade, all their foreign currency exchanges, they can't trade with us for anything, but most specifically for oil. And they know they've got to invade even more of Southeast Asia, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And to hamstring us, if we respond to that, then they've got to take out American forces in the Pacific, which most spectacularly, and what we remember most of all, is Pearl Harbor. But much like, okay, then there's January, or December 7th, and then there's 9-11. 9-11 is more than the Trade Center. Mm-hmm. It's also Sh- Shanksville. It's also the Pentagon. And December 7th is more than Pearl Harbor. It's also attack on the Philippines. Mm. Uh, no, so, that's, that's a great a great point and one uh, that uh, I wouldn't have thought to bring up. One of the things that I, I don't know that I fully comprehended, and many of our listeners, I think, probably didn't realize this either, the attack on Pearl Harbor was relatively short, wasn't it? It doesn't last long because, you know, they've got to get in and out from, from their carriers. They've, they've snuck across the Pacific in radio silence, uh, been on the, uh, on the water for, since November. And, and so they have to uh, really and, – and the idea of sneak attack is so important in this. Uh, the fact that they have not declared war on us, that the message is not delivered to us, that they are breaking off negotiations, uh, is, is, is that 
what we'd call a meme today, sneak attack, sneak attack, sneak attack. And that is why, in part, why the American people are just so livid at this attack, which cost 2,400 American dead, uh, another 1,100 wounded. And by the way, half of those dead are on that one battleship, the Arizona. Um, and, And so the Japanese want to hamstring any counterattack uh, on them in the Philippines, in the Dutch East Indies, in in the China Sea area. And what they think, they don't think they can win a long war, but they think, like the Germans, they think we're soft. They think this is going to, like, you know, well, they're not going to want to have a prolonged war against the Japanese. And so we can get away with this. Well, they're damn wrong because we're a lot tougher than that. And we mm. certainly proved that uh, in all the battles of the Pacific Islands and, and in making the decisions uh, which ultimately led to the atomic bomb. One of the look, this is overnight radio, and we explore any number of conspiracy theories from the John F. Kennedy assassination to Jimmy Hoffa to the Loch Ness Monster. One of the very consistent conspiracy theories that I think to this day a large number of rank and file Americans believe, and it's actually been written about by some fairly credible historians, people like uh, Charles Beard, John Toland, uh, a few years ago, a fellow named Robert Stinnett. They have said that there is some evidence to suggest that FDR might have known there was going to be an attack on Pearl Harbor before it actually occurred. Based on what you know, based on what's out there in terms of documents that have been released since then, is there any evidence to support this assertion? Well, there's evidence and there's evidence, but... Let's explain why I swung wide around third base heading for home talking about Pearl Harbor, and I swung all around the way to the Philippines. You don't have to sink half the damn American fleet and all of uh, FDR. FDR loved the Navy, loved ships. You didn't have to sink all those uh, ships and get all those Americans killed to get us into the war because the Japanese were attacking the Philippines and American possession or territory anyway. Mm. There would have been war anyway. So as as they as Gerald Posner said in regard to the Kennedy assassination case closed. <laughs> Got it. So um one of the things that former president Herbert Hoover who you've also written about said to uh to to friends was essentially that um you know you and I know that this continuous putting pins in rattlesnakes finally got this country bit. What what Hoover was talking about and what a lot of other people said at the time and since then was that the United States behavior sort of provoked Japan into this sort of attack. I know you alluded to the uh, the stoppage of trade and how dependent Japan was on things like American oil. Is there anything to that, to that notion that America is responsible for pro- provoking this attack? Well, the Japanese would certainly make that case, mm. and and they felt that they were backed into a corner. As another president once said, uh, William Howard Taft, when he kept getting uh, hit over the head verbally by by 
Theodore Roosevelt, you know, in a, in a forced into a corner, even even a, a cornered rat will fight. <laughs> so the Japanese who were it saw themselves as cornered rats and had no choice. Uh, they they were completely running out of uh, of uh, natural resources and particularly oil. Where if they did not. Uh, move into Southeast Asia to get that oil, they they would have lost the war very, very, very quickly. They would have just literally run out of gas. Now, of course, the question is, would America have gone to war Mm -hmm. over the Dutch East Indies at that point? Were they completely overreacting in that way with the United States? They could have just attacked, um, you know, they could have just attacked uh, Britain and the French and the Dutch, and we might have stood still stood aside, but the Japanese make that same mistake uh, as the Germans do. As you know, Hitler doesn't have to declare war right. on us, but but he does. That's another huge mistake on the part of the Axis. Yeah, you alluded to the mischaracterization of. American toughness by the Japanese, the miscalculation of America's will to fight in this war and win. One of the last lines in the film, Torah, 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 is uh, the Japanese saying among themselves that we've awoken a, a sleeping giant. Now, in hindsight, you almost would have to think that the American reaction would be what it was. Uh, that being said, w- were there any forces within the Japanese military or the Japanese government that uh, cautioned not doing this for fear of what the American response would be? There, there were, uh, and it was even within the the military, and and they knew their weaknesses, and and uh, one of the the big Japanese military figures had actually uh, been educated at Harvard around 1920, and when it was saying, you know, look out for these Americans, uh, as opposed to the uh, the other force, which said we were so weak and soft, much like Hermann Goring was saying, oh sure, they can make refrigerators, these Americans, but not tanks, and certainly not fight in them, ha ha ha. But this is the same mistake uh, in terms of of Americans not getting into the game quickly enough or fighting quickly or hard enough that the Germans had made in in World War One, where okay, uh, maybe they'll come in, but we'll we'll win this war by the time they do that, and and you know things will work out. But you know they don't. I'm wondering if you could speak to the patriotic fervor that gripped the nation following the Pearl Harbor attacks. There seemed to be a surge in people volunteering to enlist in the military, but even more so than that, there seemed to be a level of nonpartisanship and national unity that even previous wars that America had been involved in really hadn't seen. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, I mean, you take a look at what for drives us into World War One or even the Spanish American War. And these are, you know, fairly minor incidents in compared to this. Uh but this is this is so egregious uh that, you know, there is no question we have to be we have to be combatants. We have to take the fight to them. And I'm not old enough to remember Pearl Harbor per se as a as a real time event, 
But I certainly remember what it was like in the 1950s as the date on the calendar rolled around and and what the feeling was like against the Japanese. And I, I think I think it, in many senses we were as as head up. Uh, against the Jap- against the Japanese than we were against the Germans, even though the bulk of our war effort went against the Germans and had to go against the Germans, and we took our time, relatively speaking, uh, knocking the Japanese out of the war. Um, it was it was the, the the partisanship, shall we say, against the Japanese was was the was more intense, and it was a horrible war, and not only Pearl Harbor. But what happened to our guys, again, in the Philippines, the it, Bataan Death March, mm. and how horribly they were killed. There were another thousand Americans killed on the Death March after Bataan surrendered mm. and were marched off to the prison camps. And they were killed not only with starvation, uh, but also, also being beheaded along the way, uh, just just shot callously. And another 5,000 of our, our Filipino uh, uh, allies died on that. So the Japanese were as, uh, as brutal in their own way as, as the Nazis uh, in mm. theirs. Uh, David, if you were to pick a film that's the most accurate depiction historically of what occurred on December 7th. Is there one that immediately comes to mind? No, I, I'd sort of be, be looking at too much on uh, from memory on mm-hmm. that. So I also try to stay away too much from, from watching historical films because they have to take such license right. that, uh, you know, they, they fudge the details quite a bit. And, and as a historian, you don't want those, those false details to get into your brain and stay there and, and influence your thinking maybe when, when you're writing on that page. As far as you're aware, David, are there any l- people still living who were at Pearl Harbor the day of the attack? Well, I'm, I'm not sure about that either. I mean, it's certainly they, 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 it, we are down to the last leaves on, on the tree mm-hmm. and down to the, uh, you know, what we may, however, be um, not not civil, not military who were there. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were some civilians mm-hmm. in the area that, that might still be alive. And also, I think around 40 civilians were killed that day uh, in Pearl Harbor. Finally, David, I frequently get asked for recommendations for people to buy different books dealing with history or different other subjects that I have an interest in, especially around Christmas time. I've recommended a number of your books on the radio and to friends privately. If you were to pick a book about presidential history, it doesn't matter which president, doesn't matter which era, that's written by someone other than you uh, uh-huh. for uh, someone to give or receive as a Christmas gift this year, what would it be? That's a hell of a question for this hour of the morning. <laughs> we ask the tough questions, David. I, I can't, that is I, the toughest question. Gee whiz, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not quite sure. Right. Well, you could think on that and uh, come back with an answer next time you're on the show. Meantime, if you're looking for a book for the history lover on your list, check out Roosevelt Sweeps Nation, FDR's 1936 Landslide and the Triumph of the Liberal Ideal by David Pietruzza. David, it's always oh, a wait treat. Wait a minute. There's, there's a book which is half on President history, which is called The King's Depart, a very forgotten book, and it, it really deals with two things. 
Uh, it's sort of like my 1932 book on U.S. and Germany. Oh, love that. And book. one of them is it's one part is in in Germany, and the other part is about um, Theodore uh, Wildrow Wilson at uh, Versailles. That's wow. And it's a pretty obscure book, but it's and it's written by a chemical engineer in New Jersey. I love this. You, uh, you the Kings Depart, Richard Watt. You're not an engineer, but a PR guy for a chemical industry or something. And, you know, you don't have to be a PhD to do this I well. love this. Richard Watt, The Kings Depart. Uh, David, thank you. We'll talk soon. Okay. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we've covered, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, we will uh, continue with your calls uh, next hour. A, a fascinating, fascinating story that is uh, dealing with someone I'm now a fan of, uh, Selena Gomez. I'll tell you about that after the top of the hour. We'll take your calls on uh, on anything we've covered at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. want to encourage you to um, follow me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And to uh, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Fan. Big thank you to my brother-in-law, Daniel. He is not the one that just got married, but uh, he came over for Carmine's first birthday. And on the way out there, I saw him a couple of days before, he said, what can I do? To, what can I bring? And I said, well, if you come across some Zevia, bring some Zevia. Zevia is a terrific soda with no artificial sweeteners. It's great. It's, it's delicious. And I don't know that any soda is nutritious. But anyway, not only did he bring some, but we arrived home yesterday to a giant case of Zevia. Absolutely love it. Thank you, Daniel. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I am now a fan of Selena Gomez. I came out of the closet recently. I am a selenator. I think that's what our people are called. And uh, look, I don't pretend to have an expertise in everything that she's done like I do with William Shatner or Mel Brooks. But I uh, I like I like everything that she has done. She, I first became a fan by seeing her in a Woody Allen film, became a fan of her as an actress. And then I just became a huge fan seeing her on that show, Only Murders in the Building, which if you haven't seen that yet, you need to check it out. It's a great program. But Steve Martin's on that. Martin Short's great. But um, I have even come to like some of her music after that that show and after that film. And I, I kind of like her whole personality, right? And it's not – Curtis always makes it out like I have a, a crush on her. That's not the case at all. I, whenever I were to fantasize about someone, I always fantasize about someone that would really like me romantically. And I don't think Selena Gomez – I don't think I'm her cup of tea at all. And to me, she just – I know she's, I think, 30 now, but – to me, I just view her as being young, m- m- way too young for, for me to ever be in a relationship with. So it's not a romantic fandom at all. It is purely a professional fandom. But I also think that she's the kind of person, she, a free spirit, kind of an interesting character. And I've spent a lot of time on this show talking about organ donation especially kidney donation, because right now we are seeing a huge problem with kidney disease around the country and people in dire need of kidneys. And we've, we're trying to get a few kidneys for listeners of ours. And if you're interested in donating, by the way, please email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. But um, we're going to do a whole show, I'm not sure when, maybe in early January, of just wall-to-wall kidney, a kidney drive, just looking for kidneys. And a friend of mine, my friend Danielle, who I've talked about before, and she was one of the people that was hypnotized here uh, last week, she gave her kidney away, which I thought was a very nice thing to do. But she gave it away because of Selena Gomez. Selena Gomez was a kidney recipient. She had this kidney disease, and she needed a kidney, and she got it from a friend of hers. And Danielle read that article at work, and she was kind of ruminating aloud and said, oh, I would give a kidney away. Just so happens her coworker here hears this and says, oh, I, I could use a kidney. And she said, all right, well, just take mine. I have two. And that's a true story as to what happened. Selena Gomez spoke on the Today Show on NBC about her illness that led her to need this kidney donation. I had arthritis. I My kidneys were shutting down. I just kept, my mentality was just to keep going. And then she spoke about her friend who gave her the kidney. She lived with me in this interesting time where my kidneys were just done. It was, that was it. And... I didn't want to ask a single person in my life. The thought of asking somebody to do that was really difficult for me. She volunteered and did it, and let alone somebody wanting to volunteer, it is incredibly difficult to find a match. The fact that she was a match, I mean, that's unbelievable. That's not real. The person, her friend, who gave her the kidney is uh, named Francia Raisa. 
I believe that's uh, how it's pronounced. It might be Francia Reisa. But she's an actress, and she spoke on the Today Show about donating her kidney. This is, this is years ago, by the way. I think this is about five years ago, these clips that I'm playing you. But w- there's a point that we're getting to. Just bear with me. And Francia Reisa spoke about donating her kidney to Selena Gomez. One day she came home, and she was emotional. I hadn't asked anything. I knew that she hadn't been feeling well. She couldn't open a water bottle one day. She chucked it, and she started crying. And I said, what's wrong? And that's when she told me. And she goes, I don't know what to do. The list is 7 to 10 years long. And it just vomited out of me. I was like, of course I'll get tested. That's a nice thing. Nice thing for a friend to do. It's a nice thing for a family member to do. But especially if it's not even a blood relation, it's just a friend, a very nice thing. The list of people that I would give a kidney to is uh, is pretty narrow. I'd certainly give one to my son and or an immediate family member. Beyond that, I'd be hard-pressed to uh, – look, I, I mean, there are folks that I would give one to, but I'd kind of want to be in a position to give a kidney – not that anybody wants my kidneys, but give a, a kidney to my son if he ever needs one, right? But – uh, that's an, a really nice thing. I've always said, and that's why I'm a big advocate of organ donation in general, but especially living organ donation. You're on the fast track to heaven. If you give up a kidney while you're alive, you I think you can go crazy and still make it to heaven. I mean, that's my belief. I don't think that's actually specified in the Bible anywhere, but it should be. If they come out with a new book of the Bible, or I'm sure maybe some religion that has an additional book of the Bible inc- has that in there. Now, now, Selena Gomez has this new documentary out about her. I haven't seen it, but it's on my list of things to watch. Uh, by the way, if someone has seen it, I'd be curious as to your review. Please email me or text me. My uh, SMS text message number is 816-8-MORANO. So she was promoting all the things that she's doing, including the documentary, and she does an interview with Rolling Stone. And she said this in the interview with Rolling Stone. And my wife brought this to my attention yesterday. She said, did you hear about all the drama with Selena Gomez? And this is the first thing I heard when I woke up. I said, no. She said, this is what occurred. So this is the quote. I never fit in with a cool group of girls that were celebrities. My only friend in the industry, really, is Taylor Swift. So I remember feeling like I didn't belong. I felt the presence of everyone around me living full lives. I had this position and I was really happy. But was I? Do these materialistic things make me happy? I realized I just didn't like who I was because I didn't know who I was. Now, the operative part of that quote there is when she says, my only friend in the industry really is Taylor Swift. Now, her friend that gave her the kidney is an actress who's in the entertainment industry. So the friend takes to um, social media. There are too many social media networks. They're all horrible. I can't keep track. But I think she takes to either Twitter or Instagram and posts after that Rolling Stone piece in which Selena Gomez says, Her only friend is Selena Gomez. She posts four photos of, no, she posts two photos of her and Selena Gomez. One of them 
while they're in the hospital together and one while they're, you know, just hanging out. And she includes a screen grab of that article that says, I've never fit in with a cool group of girls that were celebrities. My only real friend in the industry is Taylor Swift. And she just puts one word after that article on social media. Interesting. That's the only word that she puts. And she stops following Selena Gomez on Instagram at that point. Selena Gomez is still following her, but she stopped following Selena Gomez on Instagram. Now, um, what do you think of this? What do you think of how everybody has behaved here? Selena Gomez gets a kidney from someone that she clearly had a close relationship with. And I'm not sure the nature of her current relationship with her, but you would think someone gives you a kidney, they're your friend for life. And she says Taylor Swift is her only friend in the industry. 800-848-9222. Some of the Selena Gomez defenders are saying, well, no, maybe she meant the music industry. Maybe she didn't mean the entertainment industry. Okay. Uh, and I asked my wife what she what she thought of the kidney donator response, Francia Reza, uh, Francia Reza. And my wife said what I was thinking, which is if this was something that she was upset with, and again, maybe my passive-aggressive manner of not confronting people is now multiplying and translating to the celebrity world where people who don't have to radio shows have to do this on social media instead. I get that. But maybe uh, Francia Reisa could have called Selena Gomez up and said, hey, you know, you you kind of hurt my feelings here when you said that you only have one friend in the industry. And it would have given Selena Gomez an opportunity to explain or to, you know, clarify what she meant by that. 800-848-9222. I'm curious what you think, because ultimately this kidney donator, Francia, deleted her comment. She's still not following Selena Gomez on Instagram, but she deleted her comment where she says the word interesting. So uh, curious if you think the friend was in the wrong, if you think Selena Gomez was in the wrong, and how you would handle this. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to David in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. You know, I have heard snippets of this in the past few, I guess it's been the past few months. And what I can say is that, first of all, just because someone donated an organ doesn't make you indebted to to them for life. So there's that. But then also... I don't think Selena Gomez, who I actually like, was not was dissing this woman intentionally when she referred to people in the industry and celebrities. I mean, let's be honest. I've never heard of Francia, Francia, whatever yeah, her name yeah, is. Yeah, I, I haven't. I don't think, I get it. Yeah, I don't, exactly. I don't think this person is in the league that she was referring to when she says Taylor Swift. She means people in that group, not this hanger on or whatever she is. So this girl or woman is being very oversensitive, and I think she's just looking for a fight 
to get more attention. Well, look, one is uh, she has done uh, she has done some films and she has done some TV programs. She was on the Mindy Project. She was on CSI. She was, uh, you know, she's she's done a lot of things. She just hasn't really done anything that I'm really a fan of. But it's not as if she if she makes her living being a, a celebrity hanger on. But I agree with you, uh, right? Uh, I mean, there's Taylor Swift, and then there's people that are making a living in the entertainment industry. So you don't think Selena Gomez did anything wrong here in in the way that she handled this quote? No, I mean, it doesn't sound like it. I mean, listen, you and I, we all hear celebrity gossip all the time. I've never heard anything about Selena Gomez that makes her sound like a horrible person. She's had mental issues, which she's, I think that was what the documentary was about. Right, right. And let's be honest, people with mental conditions can be very difficult to be friends with. I tried and failed. So, you know, uh, same, there's same. That. So have I. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I feel bad for all involved. I have chronic kidney disease stage three myself and may need a kidney at some point in the future. But I don't think that this is a productive thing. And I think it makes it bad for people who might need kidneys because all this drama just makes people think, well, why should I even do something like this? Yeah. So, yeah. I think I think that's a great point, David. I'm wishing you the, the you. best of luck with your health as well. Thanks, David. Um so now, here's the latest. Selena Gomez has commented on this. She commented on a TikTok about the drama around her not mentioning Raisa or her other friends in this comment or showing them in her documentary, My Mind and Me. And this is what the comment was on, to this TikTok about it because she was being criticized heavily. For this, So the comment from Selena Gomez was, sorry, I didn't mention every person I know. And fans took a screenshot of that comment. And that's now making the rounds of the, uh, you know, of social media. The Rolling Stone piece did mention that Raisa was among the attendees at Selena Gomez's 30th birthday party. And they also recently appeared on uh, Selena Gomez's uh, TikTok together. So it's not as if they've been estranged for years or anything like that. And uh, the two of them last had a public exchange about Raisa donating her kidney to Selena Gomez in March of 2021, with Gomez expressing her gratitude to Raisa, saying, quote, thank you for blessing me. I am forever grateful to you. Well, apparently not grateful enough to mention her in the Rolling Stone article. 800-848-9222. Gino is in Kings Park. Hello, Gino. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Doing well. Hey, Frank, let's uh, remember one thing about Selena Gomez. She does have mental issues. We all know that, right? It's it's been all over. Right. Uh, Ever since Justin, supposedly Justin Bieber. But I would think that she should reach out and get this squared away because uh, somebody gave me a kidney. That would be... Friend for life, you saved my life. I I don't I don't understand that with all this. You you know what goes on on social media. Somebody's got something to say, no matter what it is. But Frank, Selena needs to patch this up and get with her friend. If she was just in touch with her on TikTok, and get it straightened out. Uh, she should have mentioned her in the Rolling Stone 
magazine. I, I, you're correct about that. Uh, 100%. Now, Gino, but, what about what David said, which is that, look, um, so Taylor Swift is a huge star uh, in the same level of stratosphere as Selena Gomez, as the, in the same level as Madonna or Mariah Carey or Dolly Parton, some of the biggest stars in the history of music. And this other woman, uh, Francia Reza, she might be a working actress, but she's not in the same league in terms of being a well-known celebrity as uh, as these other folks. Maybe maybe that, that that's not what Selena Gomez meant. She just meant she doesn't have any superstar friends. She's not running around with this cadre of super celebrity uh, musical artists. Is it possible that that's an innocent enough explanation? 100% correct. And another thing uh, about what you were just saying is she really doesn't have, she never really did hang out with a lot of people. I mean, I'm not trying to talk like I know her personally, but I have followed her. I am older, uh, but, you know, she fell apart for a few years. And my my final point is she should get with her and apologize. She didn't mean it that way. And uh, I'm sorry that I didn't mention you in the Rolling Stone magazine. Right. You the, took it wrong. Yeah, and that's, but, that's my point. Uh, that's a good good point, Gino. Thank you. The other thing, though, is I really do think, and I recognize we all, and I do this, please, uh, as, as well, we all post things on social media that we regret, right? And then you delete them. And look, that could have been what her friend did here. She posted this comment on social media, throwing some shade Selena Gomez's way, and she deleted it. So, you know, I think the better way would have been to reach out to Selena Gomez directly as if she had some very loud wind chimes and you wanted to do something about it. But instead, she chose to take the take this to the court of public opinion. Um, by the way, it was reported that uh, when Francia offered to give up her kidney to Selena Gomez, Selena Gomez objected. She didn't want to take it because of Raisa's own busy career as an actress. But Raisa said that she called her assistant and said, give me the information. I want to do this. Curious how you think this uh, plays out. 800-848-9222. Deborah, Hello. Yes, hi. Um, hi. Do you know if she paid for it in any way? No, you're actually, they're very strict with that. In the United States, they do not let you pay for a kidney in any way. In fact, um, a friend of mine um, needed a liver transplant, and I was going to give him my liver and um, or a portion of my liver, and, I, you know, I was going to have to take some time off from, from work, and I read all the literature that they give you to um you know to to prepare you for this process and almost every paragraph includes something like you are strictly not permitted to get any payment whatsoever you can't do this can't be paid yeah. in any way and um then um you so no they monitor that pretty Wait, closely that's a payment so you're talking about cash right right right, right. but how do you know if there wasn't a gift somehow involved right well that's true i I wonder i don't that's right but that's what i think is going on here i think there's more of some kind of something else Mm. and maybe in the back of her mind she doesn't consider that truly a friend because 
She got what she wanted, and the lady got what she wanted. Interesting. All right. Thank you, Deborah. 800-848-9222. Nelson is in Brooklyn. Hello, Nelson. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. I'm sitting outside my dialysis clinic waiting to go get dialysis right now. I listen to you uh, every time I go in to get dialysis. Uh, you're, you're the first thing I tune in on the radio, and I'm listening to what you said. And I've had five people try to come up and uh, donate a kidney to me, and none could pass the health requirements. And I don't know what the situation mm. was with Selena and this young lady, but someone who donated a kidney to me would be saving my life, literally, and be pulling me away from this drudgery of, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning to have these people stick these needles in my arm to basically clean my blood and I would be indebted to this person for the rest of my life. Uh, like I said, I've had five people try to step up to uh, give me a kidney. And I feel like I saved their lives because now they know that they couldn't donate because they had health problems. Right. Oh, it's a great point. It's a great way to look at it. Hey, Nelson, what, if I can ask, what um, what kidney dialysis facility it, it, do you go to? You don't have to say the location, but what type, what what company or something? Oh, it's uh, it's uh, Judy, uh, Judith Weintraub, Trudy, Trudy Weintraub uh, Memorial Dialysis Center. Got it. Because I saw recently, uh, because I've been studying this issue a bit more closely, I saw this piece that John Oliver did about some problems with DeVita. Did you see that? Yeah, my wife, because we're like, I drive 20 minutes in the morning to get here on the BQE. And there's literally three uh, dialysis clinics around the corner from me. Mm. Uh, block this one, two blocks that one, three blocks that one. But uh, I've gotten bad reviews from the DeVitas. And also, anytime I've tried to call to make an appointment to go in and check their facilities, I've never gotten any response back from them. Um, and and when I was uh, when I was diagnosed with kidney failure, I spoke to my doctor. He gave me all these options, and the first thing he told me was one of the best dialysis clinics in New York is Trudy Weissop. Really? Well, that's so good I'm to like, hear. Why would I go anywhere else? Hey, uh, Nelson, uh, I'm going to put you on hold, and I want you, if you don't mind, give uh, give Kenneth your contact information. If we can find an extra kidney or two, we'll we'll reserve one for you, Okay. Love you, bro. That's right. the best. Thank you so Th- much. Thanks, Nelson. Uh, Kenneth, grab Nelson's contact information, if you would, and email that to me. 800-848-9222. And uh, a couple of other things we're keeping an eye on. The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents breaking news. Germany has arrested 25 people. This is just breaking in the last 10 minutes. Germany has arrested 25 people accused of plotting a coup. 25 people have been arrested in raids across Germany on the suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. Germany, German reports say this group of what's being described as far-right and ex-military figures planned to storm the parliament building, the Reichstag, And seize power. And if you've been asleep for a while, no, this is not 1939. It's 2022. A uh, minor aristocrat described as Prince Heinrich XIII, who's 71 years of age, 
is alleged to have been central to their plans. According to federal prosecutors, he's one of two alleged ringleaders among those arrested across 11 German states. The plotters are said to include members of the extremist Reichsburger movement, which has long been in the sights of German police over violent attacks and racist conspiracy theories. They also refuse to recognize the modern German state. So we're going to keep an eye on that. But that's certainly pretty frightening to think that uh, that this kind of thing still goes on. Right. All right. We're going to uh, do the thousand dollar minute in just a moment. But uh, a few people have been patiently holding. Want to try and get to as many of you as we can here. Uh, let me say hello to Michael in Maine. Hello, Michael. Good morning. How are you, Frank? Doing all right, Michael. Thank you. How are you enjoying that rank choice voting up there? Well, I'll tell you something. If I was in the legislature, I never would have voted for it. Well, it was on the ballot, right? The voters approved it, didn't they? Well, I think it had to had to become a referendum question. And, mm-hmm. uh, but like I say, all it's designed is to keep one party in office. Which one? Well, all I know is it begins with a D. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, Susan Collins could still get elected as a Republican. Well, with she, she's, a, she's, a, she's a rhino extraordinaire. I know, but that's, that's kind of not what you're saying, though. I mean, you know, I, either um, – but she was she got elected under the old system, and then she got yeah, elected she, under she, the new system. I mean, it sounds like it's a system that, you know, if you get the most votes, you tend to get elected. Well, let's put it this way. She's closer to a Democrat than most Democrats. She was trained by Bill Cohen, who was a who was a her mentor, and he voted with the Democrats seventy two percent of the time when he was in the U.S. Senate. Right. Well, I mean, I think in New England, uh, there's a lot of folks that uh, if you're a Republican up there, you could just as easily be a Democrat in places like the South and the Northeast in general. I think that's often the case, Michael. Anyway, Frank, I don't want to interrupt you, but the reason I called is I heard your segment on World War Two, and I know quite a bit about that. And uh, is there any chance we can... Go back to that for just temporarily. All right. Well, go ahead. Go back to it. Anyway, there's a book, and I had the book. I lent it to a person. It's called Visions of Infamy. It's written by a, a British naval investigative reporter. His name was Hector C. Bywater, and he died in 1940. And the history is, in early 1930s, the U.S. government invited Admiral Yamamoto to go to Annapolis. And then after he graduated from Annapolis, they sent him to the War College. And he learned various plans how Japan could raid Pearl Harbor. Oh, so you're saying he learned uh, that in the United States? He learned that Starting at, at Annapolis, and then he went to the War College. He went back to Japan, and he sold it to the emperor as it was his idea. Oh, interesting. That, interesting. Oh, thank you for that, now, Michael. Anyway, so 
That book's very, very hard to come by. And there's an impersonator by the name of Honan that used the same title, and it's not it's not even close to accurate. All right, give me the Hold name on. of the book again, the original. Visions of Infamy. Visions of Infamy. And uh, who's the original author, in case people want to get that? Hector C. Bywater. All right. All right. I appreciate what, that, what? Michael. Hey, hey, hey. One, one more thing. All right. We got to move on, one though, more. Michael. Please be be quick. One, the last thing he said in that book was, I don't understand where U.S. intelligence was because Japan and Germany were buying scrap metal as much as they could lay their hands on in the early 1930s. Okay? All anyway, right. you're doing a good job, young man. Thank you, Michael. I'm uh, a lot older after this phone call, that's for sure. 800-848-9222. Maureen is in Baltimore. Hello, Maureen. Uh, hello, good evening. How are you? Great. Oh, good morning. Great. Good morning. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I just wanted to respond a little bit late, if it's all right. Um, I'm a Baltimorean, but transplanted. I've only lived here about five and a half years and been in Maryland nine total. A lot of my family's here. And so the problem with Baltimore City is extremely different than anybody ever understands from the outside. Um, I call it a conundrum. I call it a sea within a tornado within a sea. But I love the people. Very but nice. Very, thank you. But it's a very, very small city. I also used to work in, in New York, and I have a lot of people from upstate. My dad was born in Syracuse. So the long story short is New Yorkers are very different. New Yorkers have the speech, the dialect, the, that's you, that's me, get out of my face, you know, that sort of thing. That's why a lot of people don't understand President Trump is that He's just bold. He's just, you know, you're not going to scare him. He doesn't have a scared centimeter in his body sort of thing. And that's why we really love my family's been listening because I have insomnia. I haven't been able to sleep. So they said, what is this other side of midnight? Can we read the book? I said, it's not a book. It's his guy. <laughs> and they all said, oh, my gosh, that sounds like Uncle Luca. Oh, my gosh, that sounds like, you know, Papa, Papa Stone, this, this, this. It gave us a great sort of homecoming moment, even though I, I haven't lived in New York in a long time. But I adored to go there with my business and I would go there any chance that I had rather than the West coast, which is a little insane right now. But anyway, Baltimore needs a lot of help and it's not really the help that the, the left, if I can say that has indicated. Um, there are some very good men, you know, our Supreme Supreme court justice. Um, uh, uh, I think he's Senator Scott. There's just a lot of people that during the pandemic, um, my background was in medicine, but I was alone. I had been injured and semi-retired, so I really didn't have a lot to do. I kind of went on Johns Hopkins' website and just filled up with all of this study that I could, Zoom or not. You know, then my computer broke down, my other phone broke down, and so I had all these books that my father was sending me uh, from Bel Air, and the long, uh, long times of uh, silence. In isolation, I just studied, so my brain wouldn't go crazy. And as I studied more and more, the government, uh, Schaefer, you know, all of this, it was O'Malley. O'Malley, we tried to do business with from Virginia. I'm from Virginia. Uh, Maureen, did you, did you have a comment day. about any of the stories that we're, we're covering tonight or this morning? 
Oh, yes. I'm so sorry because I, I told your call screener, could I mention about Baltimore? Anyway, yes. Um, let me talk to you just a second about uh, Miss Selena Gomez. She is, um, we understood that her her illness is lupus. I don't mean to, you know, um, give fact, but we thought that's what it was. And I have a sister that 3,000 times almost died of lupus. Mm. So every lupus run, every lupus walk, every lupus, we are on there. Two, two sisters and a brother-in-law on the board. So they plan all the festivities, and we all wear purple. That's the color of lupus. Anyway, we heard when she was 17, 18, She's diagnosed with lupus. So we had a connection. My sister was on Facebook in a lupus group and this and that. Anyway, she is still with us in her late 40s, and it's a miracle. But she's had three broken jaws. Mm, she's called. She had the flu shot in. She fainted on the road. She had this, this, this. She had the, all the vaccinations. Anyway, the long. so we saw this poor girl. She's been in our prayers. We're Roman Catholic. So all of a sudden they're saying, well, my sister had a, a kidney failure. They thought she was going to need a transplant. And in the end, her kidneys just started to, to work again. Um, she's had four knee replacements. She's had a hip replacement. She's had everything that a 50, 60-year-old would have in her 30s, and they misdiagnosed mm. her. So it was 18 years before they really said, okay, this is lupus. Before then, they said, well, you're just crazy. Well, you're just depressed. You need to go on antidepressant, which made her worse. So she can't have garlic because that increases her um, whole immune system quite often. Uh, Everything does. That's got to be rough. Uh, I'm sorry she's uh, gone through that, Maureen. I have to run, but I I appreciate the call very much. Thank you. Uh, and uh, kudos to uh, Kenneth on, again, encouraging everybody to get right to their point. I mean, I'll take the hit on the guy from Maine because I asked about ranked choice voting. I mean, shame on me because uh, we saw that where that got us. All right. Uh, we're going to make this up to you and give you an opportunity to win some money. Would you like $1,000? If so, you, all you need to do is answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that, then be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That is 800-848-9222. And uh, you can play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is That Girl by Frankie J, who is celebrating his birthday today. Uh, That's right, along with a bunch of other interesting people. We'll tell you about them a little bit later. Including um, my, uh, my wife's Aunt Beth. That's right, Beth Fruchtman. Happy birthday to you. And uh, a bunch of other interesting people are celebrating birthdays today. Walter Gilroy, Tommy Gioli's son-in-law, celebrating birthday today. 
And uh, if it's your birthday today, happy birthday to you. All right. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to win some money by answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. All right, here we go, here we go. Let us say hello to Mike in Queens. Hello, Mike. Yes, sir. I'm I'm psyching myself down because uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to butcher the whole thing, but uh, I got my fingers and toes crossed. Wonderful. Have you played before, Mike? I played a while back with you with this uh, this other thing you were doing. I didn't play this. I played okay, some, all right. Uh, yeah, your voice sounds familiar. All right, so yeah, need, yeah, yeah, needless yeah. to say, you're familiar with the contest, right? Uh, I, I guess it's just trivia. I get answer 10 questions right, and they get like $1,000. Right, exactly, simple. exactly. Uh, so uh, if you get a question right, we're, I'm just going to move on to the next question so that uh, we can oh, I did. Get... The, I did the debate thing, that debate thing you had. I did right, that. Is right, that a right. I remember, sure. So, um, okay. so if you answer a question correctly, we're just going to move on to the next one so that we can work our way through all 10 of these quickly, okay? Now, can I pass on a question if I'm stuck in it? And Unfortunately and not. Unfortunately not. Okay, fire away. Let's All right, ready to go? Okay, the timer will begin after I ask you the first question. What Cheers actress passed away this week at the age of 71? Uh, Kirstie Alley. Including the area code, how many digits are in an American phone number? Uh, Ten. Who was the founder of the Drudge Report? Matt Drudge. Who has the longest Jeopardy winning streak of all time? Oh, the oh, that's that. No, uh, Luke Eric. The longest Jeopardy winning streak. The game show Jeopardy. Oh. No, I'm, I'm thinking of the the guy. The guy. Uh, oh, the guy who won everything. It, it, oh, I, 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 can I come back? I can't come back to it. Right? You can't come back. Can you come up with something? Uh, Ken something. Ken. Whatever his name was. All right. I, I don't think we can give you that one. Um, it, it, is, it was Ken Jennings. Ken Jennings. Ken Jennings. Ah, okay. Uh, so I'm sorry you didn't win. Mike, I'm putting you on hold. Uh, give Kenneth your information. We're going to send you a consolation prize, okay? Good, man. Thank you very, right. very much. Good luck. Great thanks job. for thanks for playing, Mike. Call again. Um, yeah, Ken Jennings. You know, it's funny. I don't want to... If anybody uh, DVR'd or taped yesterday's Jeopardy, I don't know how people record things anymore stop listening for 20 seconds okay you've been warned so yesterday this guy chris who from uh, ocean city new jersey he is in the midst of one of the five or six most impressive jeopardy winning streaks of all time i think he's fifth on the all-time money list he lost yesterday and it was a very close game but he didn't get final jeopardy right and uh, he lost. It came to an end. And it really, he won 21 straight games. 21 straight games. I think about $700,000. It really makes you impressed with what Ken Jennings did. Ken Jennings won 74 straight games. 74 straight games. And then did very well and won the Tournament of Champions. Then came back and went on a bunch of other game shows as well. You know, interestingly enough, uh, Ken, before he was on Jeopardy, I think Ken Jennings actually tried out for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and didn't get picked. 
So isn't that interesting? 74 straight games. Ken Jennings. All right. Um, a lot of other interesting things to get to, but there's been a lot of people that have been patiently holding. Uh, I'm going to get to them. I would just ask that you try to get to your point quickly. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Alex in California. Hello, Alex. Yes, I wanted to say the reason the United States uh, is slowly becoming disunified is because uh, we have uh, multiple cultures now, and Western culture is just barely dominant, but it's receding. And by the year 2040, the dominant culture will no longer be Western. Back in 1943, we had a single dominant culture was Western. It was facilitated by the fact that 80% plus of the population was European-American. And what this all means is that open borders and attempts to, to create a, a, a diversified cultural base is basically destroying the country. So if we, if there, you're saying if there were more white people, then we would be more unified? It was helped by the fact there was a single dominant uh, group of ethnic or uh, racial group. But it need not necessarily be a single... Uh, ethnic group. You could be multiple ethnic groups, but there needs to be a single dominant culture. And in the past, Western culture was that dominant culture, but now it's receding. Uh, 50 years from now or 100 years from now, we will again return to a single dominant culture. So we'll be unified. But this time it'll be unified under Hispanic culture, not Western culture. Uh, Thank you, Alex. I I disagree with 40% of what you said, meaning I do think you know, you're using sort of racially coded language to say we need more white people. Okay, I, I get that you're saying it's not uh, it's not a race thing; it's a cultural thing. I think you're right in that um, open borders and so forth has diluted a spirit of unity, but I don't think it has anything to do with ethnicity. I think it has to do with the mentality of some of the people that come to America. For instance, if you look at a first-generation Chinese immigrant in in New York, for instance, the kind of uh, the kind of people that Amy Chua writes about in the hymn of the the Tiger Mom, right? Uh, the battle. Uh, I don't remember the t- title of the book, but the one about the Tiger Mom. Um, those are folks that come here with the desire to be American. Right. Those are folks that come here with the desire to do well in American society as it is and be part of American society. I think the mentality that you're describing, it has to do with a change in mentality in some of the folks that come here and not all the folks, but some who instead of wanting to be a part of the American melting pot, they want to instead um, take the culture that they fled with them and just transplant it here. I do think you're right about that, but I don't think you have to be the descendant of a European Amer- of a European in order to have that mentality. I've seen Asian folks, folks that are black, folks that are Hispanic, all have that approach of come here and be part of America and be American. So I don't think it's just a f- reflection of that we've changed immigration from few uh, there used to be a whole bunch of Europeans and now there's more Hispanic people. I think it's a much more complicated and nuanced situation than the one you're describing. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Chris in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. 
Good morning, Frank. My next-door neighbor's daughter is an organ transplant director of a major hospital in Baltimore, and she was one in Philadelphia before. Um, the Selena Gomez thing, you know, it's hard for people to deal with success on that level. Um, sounds like she had some issues. A lot of people have trouble dealing with success on all well, levels. Well, when you say she, uh, when you say she, um, I know pronouns are all the rage now with the Gen Zers, but do you mean Selena Gomez or her friend Francia? No, I would Selena Gomez, but also I would check into whether the journalist accurately quoted her. And then the thing that you said before about differentiating between singer and actress, there could be some component of that to it. I want to compliment you on your interview. I uh, fell asleep at 10, woke up at like 335, turned you on to see what you had on. And that was the best interview. I think the part of it I heard that the questions that you asked your show prep really paid off, Frank. You're the best interviewer in 37 years of talk radio oh, I've ever okay. listened to. Well, that is not my, true, but thank great, you. My great-grandfather, who was the chairman of the Sullivan County Democratic Party, and he was an assemblyman for like half a term, he was literally, I just found this out like two years ago, he was best friends with FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt. They used to come summers to Liberty, New York, and stay with him, uh, Benjamin Giroux. It, at his house in during summers, they would come up almost every weekend when well, they could. Well, that's something, Chris. I appreciate that. I'm going to leave. You have my address because you sent a pizza to my house that time. If you can send me an, an autographed photo now that I know you are the grandson of FDR's best friend, and I will hang it up. See, it's very smart what Chris did, who, by the way, was a former elected official. If you hadn't heard, um, very smart what Chris did. See, he 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 went. He not only gave a compliment, but he gave an over the top compliment. The best interviewer of all time, Larry King and the John Gambling and Barry, Barbara Walters. They couldn't shine your shoes. And then he went into a way to kind of, you know, pat his own back and talk and make sure that he was still the center of the conversation. So how am I going to cut him off or make fun of him after he tells me how great I am? Very smart. What uh, what Chris did. He learned from that lady in Baltimore, right? Obviously, I couldn't cut that lady in Baltimore off. She's still talking, by the way. Wherever she is, she's still talking um, because she was so nice to me. So, Chris, you see, that's why he was he was a skilled politician, former elected official, if you hadn't heard, is that he listens to what other people are saying and doing. And then he kind of uses those approach to get his point across. A whole bunch of things that I didn't get to talk about today that I wanted to. Uh, we'll save it for tomorrow. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. Uh, thank you for tuning in. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute uh, where you can be heard for 15 seconds. Three open lines at 800-848-9222. Uh, I want to give a big shout out to my cousin-in-law, Kim Kravitz, who is a distinguished journalist in her own right, who's up early listening to us. Uh, hello, Kim. I told her she should just call in whenever. Now, last time she called into this show, she got engaged. See, that's what happens. And uh, same thing with uh, that lady that just called in from uh, Maryland. I think uh, she probably is engaged as a result of that phone call as well. All right. Um, good news is, for me anyway, I have finally gotten through my email. It only took me four days, but I have gotten through my work email. I haven't gotten through my personal email yet. I still have 10 remaining. Now, it's going to be tough. Because a lot of these are New Year's Eve Eve related. By the way, tomorrow's going to be an interesting show. Because I told my wife, my wife said to me yesterday, Frank, it's three weeks before New Year's Eve Eve, and you still have not sent out this email. You've never sent it out this late before. It's going to be a disaster. And uh, I said, you're right. You're right. I said, when I, I am, when I come home, I am not going to sleep until I finish this email. So this is going to be a harrowing show tomorrow because I chances are I will be doing this show on no sleep tomorrow. No sleep. 800-848-9222. Time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Neil! How does a guy like DeGrom get $185 million and someone like you who's number one in the time slot, the best interviewer on the radio, gets a lousy $62 million? <laughs> Fred. Hey, Frank, my friend Leo makes glasses. I said, Leo, are your glasses half full or are they half empty? He goes, naturally, they're full. He's quite an optometrist. <laughs> Carol. Hi there, Frank. Um, I was just calling about Pearl Harbor. I wanted to speak to you about that earlier. You know, the British plays a very important role in Pearl Harbor, which a lot of people don't know about. James. Michael. I could never get a a traffic infraction ticket because I was bad at math. And finally, Ray. Hey, Frank, uh, people don't get Curtis's stick with you. You're a great interviewer, and uh, Curtis is the Pac-Man of radio. Eats up all the airtime, and it's just great at it. Yeah, it's when he turns blue and goes the other way, I worry. Thank you, Ray. Uh, well, this has been a lot of fun. You want to stay in touch, uh, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And uh, I will be back tomorrow. Same bad time, same bad station. Frank Morano, good day.